This week, we have Catherine Teitler from Misty to talk about InfoSec World, other conferences, and security culture. Matt Alderman from Tenable Network Security will also join us, as well as a featured interview slash technical segment uh, with Nathaniel Q. Quist from Logarithm. In our stories of the week, printers get attacked. Yes, I'm going to talk about that once again. A patchwork quilt for IoT security. Trump's cyber executive order. Bring out your dead. A firm wants to pay big bucks for old bugs. Some news on HD more, WordPress, and more on this edition of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Brought to you by Gain Control of Cyber Risk with Tenable IO, the first vulnerability management platform built for today's elastic assets like cloud, containers, and web apps. Discover a fresh, asset-based approach that prioritizes vulnerabilities while seamlessly integrating into your environment. Improve ROI with the first elastic licensing approach based on assets, not IP addresses. Tenable IO delivers the data and context you need to secure your elastic attack surface. Start your free Tenable IO trial by visiting tenable.io. The average time between being hacked and realizing you've been hacked is one year. Can you afford to let an intruder roam your network for that long? Can your company weather the fallout when this comes to light? Black Hills Information Security can help find the bad guys in your network and train you to do it yourself. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a hunt teaming engagement can help you find a persistent threat in your network. The SANS Institute, the most trusted source for computer certification training and research. Visit sans.org to explore their full curriculum and latest training offers. Welcome everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. This is episode 499 for February 2nd. 2017. I'm your host, Paul Asadorian, broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Very special show for you this evening. As always, we've got, um, this week, we've got some in-studio guests. We've got some people on via Skype and uh, a fully packed show to run through this evening. I'll start by introducing, uh, I'll let the lady go first, Catherine Teitler from uh, Misty is here with us. Catherine, welcome. Thank you. After some announcements and stuff, I'll read your full bio, because I, I think that's important, uh, as well as for Mr. Matt Alderman, who I want to read your bio, Matt. This is just the bio that they gave me uh, that I feel is important to introduce you on the show. He is probably the coolest guy around, but he won't tell you that. He's the kind of guy you want by your side when fighting off an army of 10,000 pygmies with poison arrows. He can tell you what color your underwear is by looking into your eyes. He can eat a cheeseburger in one bite. Scientists have said that he is so hot, he may be the main reason for global warming. He's, you know what, doesn't stink. In fact, it smells like car polish. He was refused entry to the USA because his biceps were classified as weapons of mass destruction. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records for completing the most somersaults in a row. 126,253! Matt Alderman! 
<laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks. I think that was your bio. <laughs> I, I think I, that might have been mine. They came up with me, but I thought it would be funny to read it on the show. It, it was actually good, good yes. nonetheless. My wife's going, who's that? Who's that? <laughs> who's that? He can't even do one somersault. Never mind 126,253. <laughs> you could do a somersault. All right. I can do a somersault. During yeah. the break, Matt's going to do a somersault. That's... <laughs> At least one. At least one. 123,000. On the lines via Skype, Mr. Carlos Perez is here with us. Carlos, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Happy to be here. Yes, nice to have you, Carlos. Mr. Michael Santarcangelo is here with us as well. While we're graced with Michael's presence on Paul Security Weekly, this is a glorious occasion. Both Carlos <laughs> and Michael on via Skype. I'm, this is so awesome. It's your southern exposure coming through, I guess. That's right. You know what? You saw, I saw KT was on the show, and I was like, "Kids, you got to go out tonight. Daddy's got some work to do." You it. know, so. it's, it. it's not even me. It's Catherine. I I get that. I get that. Well, I get you. I get you every Friday. You do. You do. We do have a glorious time every Friday, Michael it and is I. Fantastic. It is. It is a lot of fun. I was. Um, I was. I, I Minerva Labs really impressed me, and it takes a. I mean, we talk about security vendors on the show all of our shows all the time right that was a really cool <laughs> it, is, it is a theme <laughs> it is a theme we do talk about security vendors that was a that was a really cool one so yeah eddie was uh i talked to him again afterwards and uh, he's one of those people that the more you talk to him the more impressed you get not mm. the less like mm-hmm. he his his grasp of leadership and his the subtleties of nuance of stuff i uh i'm impressed i wish them a lot of luck and and uh, we'll learn from him again we got some other good people coming up too uh, i'm excited about what uh what we're going to cover Absolutely. A couple of quick announcements. IT Pro courses now include Cybersecurity Analyst Plus, CCNA, CyberOps, ITIL Operations Support Analysis, Penetration Testing, Network Plus, and Ethical Hacking V9. IT Pro is introducing a new membership level soon. All current premium members will be granted the highest membership available. So sign up today at itpro.com forward slash security weekly. Use the discount code SW30 and save 30% off for life. InfoSec World 2017 conference is being held April 3rd through the 5th at the Omni Orlando Resort at Champions Gate in Orlando, Florida. Security Week listeners receive 10% off the conference or World Pass using the code OS17-SW. Hear talks from Kevin Johnson, Rich Mogul, Corey Doctorow, and more. Visit InfoSecWorld.Misty.com, that's M-I-S-T-I, to register today. And speaking of InfoSec World... We have Catherine here with us this evening. She's in the house. In the house. Catherine's the director of content for Misty, where she's responsible for programming, information security conferences, workshops, and summits. She also writes on a variety of security topics for the company's InfoSec Insider and contributes articles to third-party security media. Previously, Catherine was a director of content at Eins, where she built a research program for subscription clients and has held various editorial and sales roles at CFO Research, Forrester Research, and Bitpipe which is acquired by Tech Target. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It is nice to have you here. Uh, many in the security industry are like, who's Catherine? And I'm like, no. You're like, we all, we, some of us know Catherine really well and consider her part of the security community. I and I think so. it was It was fabulous to have you on the show. Um, I don't know how we first got in touch with these, each other. One of our mutual friends in security was like, hey, you got to talk to Catherine to get in this InfoSec world thing. And I'm like... I don't know InfoSec World. I don't know Catherine, but I was hooked instantly. So, yeah, two years ago was your first talk. Yes, 
and I don't remember who introduced us, but Kevin maybe Kevin Johnson could have been Kevin. Yeah, you came in, you did your talk, and you left. But last year you stayed. I did. Ooh. And now we're staying even like long. We're we're in it for the long haul now in every infosec world in Orlando, which is great. It's your shirts. I don't want to say sold out because you were giving them out, but yes. you ran out of your shirt. <laughs> they were a big hit. The they Hack Naked huge. T-shirts, yeah, which sometimes we get flack for, but your your audience was all, they were all in. They, they loved them. In. And who can who can not want to go to Orlando in April? It's like perfect time. It's a warm place. It is, it a, warm is a warm place. place. Yeah. It's nice it's to go to Orlando. Better than Vegas in August. That is true. definitely true. <laughs> definitely true. <laughs> definitely true. Way, way true. It's probably better than RSA in Singapore in July or Abu Dhabi in November. That's too. right. That's right. <laughs> really hot. <laughs> Abu Dhabi's probably cooler than Orlando, but, you know, Orlando's easy to get to. It is. True. It is. Yeah. So um, now you've done some writing for the security industry. How, how did you get started in like writing? Your background wasn't in security, but then you made yeah. the transition in security. How did that happen? Um, so I was in sales and I was in sales by accident for many years. And I didn't really like it. I'm not a salesperson. I don't like the whole sales thing. Um, and when I was at IONS, there was an opportunity. And I've always written, and I've always you know, written my own sales materials, marketing materials, things like that. And there was an opportunity at IONS, and I just said, okay, this is what I'm going to do now. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And when I left there, just started writing more and it's really fun because i get to be a little weird where you know at conferences all, and that fits in the security culture it's yeah. true yeah. it's true yeah. i i don't know if there's another industry where i'd fit in without being a security person or a security practitioner i should say um the way i do in security because weird is good it is yeah. it is absolutely so what are some of the topics that you have written about recently um, so I just published a couple of things, um, identity and access management, why passwords suck, um, signs you've been breached. Um, we sort of cover the gamut of things. There's a lot of leadership stuff. Michael and I talk about leadership all <laughs> the time. I'm sorry. And what That's, leadership is and what it is Michael isn't. can talk a lot about leadership. <laughs> you could just say, Michael the can lack talk of. a lot. He can um, talk a lot. And then in leadership, it's like in overdrive, Michael. We, we do. We talk, <laughs> we, t- we talk about that a lot. Um, but it really runs the gamut. It depends Ooh. on what we're hearing from our attendees at conferences and we're trying to get better about that because we don't have a great feedback mechanism right now um people come to us at conferences and say i'm interested in this that or the other thing but our publishing program is only about a year old i think you should write about more kung fu movies (laughs) (laughs) what do you think i do have to say infosec world was my first security conference i remember back in 2000, you guys had uh, Steve McClure of the Hacking Exposed book. They just recently came out with it. I remember getting my first edition signed by him and everything. And that was actually when I shifted from uh, being on the defensive over to the offensive side in security. It's actually, this is our 23rd year. Wow. Not my 23rd year, but the company's 23rd (laughs) year. So I think it's the longest running security conference it's right there with Black Hat, but it's been around for a while. Yeah. What was your initial impression of the security community as you got to work with several of our mutual friends uh, uh, in security? So 
I started taking an interest in security when I was at Forrester. Um, there was one particular analyst I worked with a lot. And the way it worked over at Forrester on the sales side is I got to keep clients if I didn't book them on a subscription. And though I wasn't doing it purposely, I had a lot of consulting clients. And it turned out that everybody wanted the same consulting gig on BCDR. So I went on like 10 visits, client visits, and I could almost just do her spiel for her because mm-hmm. it was the same thing over and over. Um, so I started to get interested in that. And um, then when I was over at Heinz, it was all security. And, you know, a lot of people are scared of the security community. I've <laughs> never had a problem. Michael's laughing over there. <laughs> well, are we scary? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different culture. It, there's definitely a the culture. The lack of showers. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, there's a lot of insider type things. And um, I've heard a lot of people say that they feel like an outsider. I don't find that. I find everybody really welcoming. And as somebody who doesn't have a security or even a computer background, my degree was in music. Um, Everybody that I've worked with, and I'm in an enviable position, right? Because I get to choose who I get to work with in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, told I have to, you know, when I was in sales, I had to work with whomever was in my territory. But... Um, everybody that I work with is really generous, willing to explain stuff. They don't care that I don't have a background. They're just more interested in talking about it. And if that helps me, that's awesome. If it helps them, it's awesome too. Um, yeah, so so it's only been good. I've never felt like an outsider. Mm. Maybe that's me living in my little bubble, but I've always found it a pretty welcoming community. I think that's part of your personality as well, um, that you're very welcoming of the security community. And I think through that, you've put together a really interesting conference uh, in terms of balancing some of the business aspects of it, as well as some of the uh, security community, as well as some of like really like hacking type talks at your conference. You really run the full gamut. What's your like selection process like for the talks and people that you choose to, to work with and invite to the conference? So we're actually doing a CFP now for an event in Denver, mm. as a matter of fact. Nice. Yes. Um, so we always do a call for presenters, call for speakers. Um, and we get a decent number in, but I also like to go out to people that I know who do interesting things, who can give great talks, who can fit in the program wherever. Um, because with a call for speakers, you can only know so much, unless somebody on the committee. For InfoSec World, we have a an advisory committee, and they look over the talks as well. And when I go through, you have to submit your your talk, your title, your abstract, everything, and then I'll go out and I'll look on YouTube or t- and read through Twitter and look at their LinkedIn and try to get as much information, but it's still only on paper or on screen. Um, so it's really a process of figuring out what do we have. There are about 125 speakers at InfoSec World. There are 70 tracks on the main program. We have 10 workshops and three summits. So when somebody submits for a CFP, actually, this is one question I get all the time. You know, how do you make your decision? It's not necessarily just who we think the best talks are. It has to fit into the conference. We only have so many talks on information protection. We only have so many talks on threat intelligence. It can't be, you know, one of, you know, just one topic. And, you know, two years ago, I think we got 
22 talks on IoT. And mm-hmm. I was like, we can't have 22 talks out mm-hmm. of 70 on IoT. Right. So even people who had good submissions had to be rejected for that. And um, so it's really balancing what we need on the program, but also who our audience is. And the audience makes a big difference because something that would work at a Black Hat, a DEF CON, a B-Sides might not work in InfoSec world. We tend to have a little bit more of a business-focused type of audience. And the hacking thing is a little scary to a lot of people. We get actually about 11 12% auditors who come. So the idea of, um, like, we have a workshop on reverse engineering and exploitation. There's no way that they're going to touch that. So I have to counterbalance that with something like um, creating a security culture. Mm-hmm. Now, do you leverage your audience to figure out what topics go into the next program? How do you pick kind of those specific tracks, right? Because there's so many tracks you could potentially cover. So how do you get that feedback from the community and the, and the attendees to f- really focus what they're looking for? So it's a combination of things. So we have eval forms, and so we get to sift through those after. We're all digital this year at InfoSec World, so that will make our office manager guy's job a lot easier, which is good. Um, but then it's also just a process of going out and talking to people throughout the year. I'm in contact with folks. I mean, Michael and I text multiple times every day, and there are a lot of other people in the community that I'm in contact with. So just trying to use the network to find out what people want. Um, but directly from the attendees, it's the evals, it's mm-hmm. talking to them at conferences, it's Picking you know. up major trends that people might yeah. want to focus on. Yeah. Okay. What are, um, based on last year's, what are, were some of the most popular talks and topics? Um, well, threat. Anything having to do with threat mm-hmm. was right up there. I think the top five out of ten talks were all about threat in some form or another. Um, one of the most popular talks, we're actually doing a part two. Bill Dean, um, he did a talk, uh, Darwinism via Forensics. And it was stories about what he had found in his investigations. And he was just showing all of the really insane things he had found. Which brings me to another topic, Hunted, which is on TV. We should talk about that. That's really interesting if you haven't seen it. But this year he's coming back because last year he talked about the stories and the things that you can find when you're running an investigation and people don't think you can find. And people were so excited about that. They said, we want that, but we want to be able to see how it's done. Mm-hmm. So he actually just did an OSINT workshop for us in um, in New Orleans that was great and really popular. So at InfoSec World, he's going to be talking about how you can actually use tools, some free, some not, to find out all kinds of information during an investigation. Kind of like a hands-on session. A little bit, yeah. 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 I bet you won't get many volunteers from the audience for that one. Probably not. (laughs) He will not be picking people out and saying, all right, give me your username on LinkedIn. It doesn't go over well. I've done similar things. Like I've run a Bluetooth scanner and put the results up and then had to quickly take it down because I'm like, oh, no, that like identifies people in the audience. That's really yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It's really bad. Yeah. So you were talking about the TV show Hunted? Hunted. Have you heard about this? I've, I've seen, I yep. think, a commercial for it where they uh, people are trying to find people, essentially, and those people have to like go off-grid. and Or 
think they're going off grid. So yeah. I was just home last night and I turned on the TV just winding down before bed. And it's really interesting because they have all these like ex-CIA and FBI and the whole team. I think there are maybe 20 of them. And they have these teams of two who are supposed to be hunted and they have to figure out how to escape. And, you know, sort of in our society, there's no way to escape. And even these people who think that they're being crafty by picking up burner phones and borrowing other people's phones and getting rides from people, there's really no way. But it's really cool because you can watch all of the people looking for the hunted and how they go about finding people. And like last night, they went into this one woman's apartment and they did, you know, the old thing from when you were in school with the pencil. Mm. And they found her calendar and they found their entire plan for how they were going to get away <laughs> from the hunt team. So it was interesting. It was really cool. It's a different variation of hunting that we talk about in, yes. in, in yes. networks as well. Yeah, people hunting versus... Uh, right. So I was thinking if we could get maybe a couple of people from security to do it, see how well they'd do on the show. You know, how far they'd get on the show. Because I think we're all hyper aware of that type of tracking and surveillance. Right. You should go. If I can get drones to, like... <laughs> they found one guy via a drone... Well, if, well, I want drones so I can disrupt my people who are trying to find me. <laughs> False flag operations, right. Yes. KT, I've got a question for you, because you and I have talked about this before. Um, the the less sexy topics sell well. So the, there's always people looking for the basics. So how, how do you make that interesting? Or how do you, A, convince somebody to submit a talk on something that, that is judged more basic, but that, frankly, people are probably struggling with? How do they make that interesting so that people show up to it and get value from it? And how do you figure out how to bridge those two? Well, it depends on the tracks because we have seven tracks. And there are certain tracks that lend themselves to some of the less sexy topics like GRC. Um, I love that topic. <laughs> oh, we can talk GRC all day long. As soon as you said that, I thought about Matt used to work I in I can GRC. make GRC sexy. Yeah. Come on. Uh, well, then maybe you should be asking him, Michael. Um, Matt, Matt can try to make GRC <laughs> sexy. That's you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of people who aren't focusing on the basics. And a lot of the incidents and breaches get caused by really Stupid simple user things. errors. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even you like end user user, but... You know, sometimes you can't help it. You know, phishing works and it will always work. But, you know, not checking your accounts in Active Directory, that's dumb. But it's also hard to keep up with it. And so that's how a lot of this stuff happens. And, you know, so so there are people who are at different stages. You know, somebody like Paul's not going to come in and, you know, talk about tuning your firewall. It's just, that's just... I don't ever see that happening. But there are a lot Maybe. of people who are really passionate about looking at the fundamentals and, you know, back to basics. So if Paul talked about Kung Fu firewalls, I would probably go. I just want to be on record for that. He that, is Ma- talking Michael about is, Kung Fu. Yeah. Can we do Michael's Kung Fu rassing. GRC? Yeah. <laughs> Michael's yeah, That'll make it sexy again. My, All right. my talk so, my- uh, for InfoSec <laughs> World is everything I needed to know about security I learned from watching Kung Fu movies. Um, and I've actually given a test run 
uh, of the talk because I was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to pull it off. Because I basically have like 14 different things that I learned from Kung Fu movies. And I actually defined the Kung Fu movie lessons first. <laughs> and I'm like, because I'm like, all these Kung Fu movies I've watched, I'm like, there's like some varying themes and some things I learned from them. I'm like, and I related a couple of them to security. So I made a list of those 14 things. And I'm like, I think I can relate all of those to security. And then I, I gave it. And then people were like, no, that, that, that works. You, you did it. That you, works. You did it. Good. Cause I was skeptical. I'm like, I don't know if I can pull this off. I might be talking too much about Kung Fu movies and not enough about security, but I think I got the balance right. So that's good. Cool. Um, have you been, you've obviously become more skeptical of a lot of things digital since you've worked with uh, security folks. What are some of the changes that you've made in your digital life as a result of hanging out with, with people like us that do hacking and security You know, as our jobs? I don't download any apps. I have almost no apps on my phone. I'm really suspicious of apps. I hate That's them. good. Yes. Um, Very good. Banking apps especially. Yeah, I don't use them. Any kind of flashlight apps could be any kind. We've yeah. seen all kinds of apps. I, I do have to use my flashlight app because my cat kicks things under the couch. So <laughs> yes, I use the yes. flashlight app quite a lot. It's built in now. It's built in now. So don't install the third-party flashlight right. app. Right. So certainly no third-party apps, but no apps. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm suspicious of everything. But at the same time, I also realize that everything I do is being tracked anyway mm. at some level. Um you know, I use password manager. I, um, I never give out my real phone number ever. I make phone numbers up all the time. I don't know why, but I don't ever give out my phone number. We've increased your level of paranoia. So much so that like Good when job. Marcus Random sends you a package, you're very concerned. No, actually, <laughs> when it comes from Marcus, I know it's something fun. Yes. Soap. <laughs> it, it actually was soap. It was soap. That's, it was. That's, that's true. When it came in the mail and I saw it, and I did for a split second, I went, but then I realized it was it's soap. soap. It was soap. It was, soap. Yeah. It was pretty awesome. It did is, you get soap? I, I did not get soap. He featured some sh- soap on the show when we there interviewed him and, and held it up on camera and stuff. So, yeah. Some of it was kind of somewhat inappropriate. Yeah, I got, for- I got PC soap. That's good. Oh, that's good. good. That's good. good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got PC soap. I know a lot of people who got not so PC soap. Right, no. right. Yeah. Um, and so now you, uh, InfoSec World branches out of straight security. Like Orlando is kind of like the straight security one uh but you also kind of like the even more probably your auditor tracks and things like that correct yeah so we do have two sides of the business there's the original business was all auditing um and security only came i think it was about 15 years no i guess it was 23 years ago but it never it didn't get popular um until about 15 years ago and so there's a whole other side and we have audit world and um, super strategies and ITAC, which is IT audit and controls and a bunch of other mm-hmm. audit events as well. They're pretty separate. Um, Seeing more and more overlap in recent years? Um, for a while there was, but it's actually my goal to keep them separate. Yeah, interesting. So you don't want the auditors in the InfoSec or? It's not that I don't want them there. Um, they're welcome. Anybody is welcome to come to any of our conferences. Um, it was getting to a point where there were a lot of audit topics on security, and there are always a lot of security topics on our audit conferences too. Um, 
But the whole thing about audit is that it has to be this independent, objective oversight body. And I think the waters are getting really muddied. And I think, especially from the audit side, they want to be more involved in security. But their understanding of security is very different. And so when we talk about risks, even in the office, I have these arguments all the time. Risk means something different to an auditor than it does to a security person. And I think when you try to commingle audit and security, you start to confuse the message. Right. Especially the risk message. Because auditors try to put it into context of business risk, which we in security haven't done a very good job of. We, we think of severity and criticality and those sorts of things where audits trying to associate it to a potential business impact right. to report back up to the audit committee, up to the board. So, Which yeah. isn't a bad thing because security should be thinking about business. Um, but the way they think about security is uh, – the way auditors think about security is very, very different. And we've had these conversations internally and my preference would, to be, would be to keep them separate and not have – audit events at security conferences and vice versa. Um, because anybody can go. If you're an auditor, you're more than welcome at Security World. And if you're a security person and you want to go to our ITAC conference, that's great. But it's a very different focus. Got it. Yeah. You mentioned IoT uh, before with all the IoT devices on the market. Uh, have we as a security community really shaped that for for you and uh, you know others that are non-security practitioners? Like, how much of an impact do you think we're we're making? I mean, certainly for you, you hang out with us security people a lot, so you're probably like, "Yeah, I'm not buying an Alexa." <laughs> Maybe <laughs> no, you I, are. I don't. That, know. That, actually, that's true. I don't have any IoT stuff in my house. Um, yeah, personally, it it creeps me out a little bit. I know it's coming, and I know if I don't start to mm. adapt and adopt, I'm just going to be one of those, you know, crazy old cat ladies. But um, going to be oh, sorry, that not may the be old fine, part. Though. The crazy cat lady I, part, maybe. I've, I've, <laughs> I've actually embraced that. That's fine. Um, I think you know, just looking outside of the security community and you know, friends, acquaintances, I. Th- think people are starting to understand it a lot more and i think they you know like when dave kennedy was on the katie couric show for goodness sake talking about baby monitors that was Mm -hmm. several years ago but it is getting more mainstream people do understand it it's not strange to them i don't think they think i don't think a normal person who's not in security thinks about the implications as much as security people do but i think they're aware of it and I think they have at least a basic understanding. When my, you know, 73-year-old father is asking me how to implement two-factor authentication, you know, mm. it, it's pretty mainstream. That's really cool. That's yeah. interesting, yeah. Yeah. I've actually, I think, go ahead, Because I think a lot of consumers love the novelty of the cool tech and the automation at home, not realizing the potential impact so you, you talk to a lot of people that aren't in our industry, and they're like, oh, my gosh, I got my whole house wired up with Nest. Really? You think that's safe? I don't It's convenient, but they're enamored with the technology right. and what they can do and, and the novelty of it, but I don't think they understand the potential ramifications of, of what it could open them up to. I think that's true of a certain demographic, and I do think as people who have never lived without a computer, people who have never seen one of those phones 
that's you know the ones we had on the wall and the giant cord yeah, yeah exactly and the I have as, we, at home. as yeah. more and more of those people grow up and and they start owning houses i definitely think that's more of a consideration uh, yeah. you know i know that like my niece all of her accounts um she doesn't have a lot but like her instagram and her facebook accounts those are totally locked down when we started in 2008 2009 2007 something like that mm. yeah social media security was yeah, yeah yeah definitely took some time to evolve yeah uh, at the conference the ratio of men to women is that still very much leaning towards men and you know what's your assessment of uh, kind of that ratio being out of balance in terms of men versus women. Well, it's definitely a male-dominated industry. Um, you know, I've seen different statistics, 11% up to 18% mm-hmm. industry-wide. Um, either way, it's not very good. At Misty, we actually do pretty well. We were a woman-run company for 13 years. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I know when I go to conferences... Um, I don't see as many women as I do at InfoSec World. And as a matter of fact, I tried to do more outreach to female speakers this year just to get a little more balance. I tried to balance it with my guests as well. I know. I saw there was a lot, of female, well, yeah. a lot of female, well, a lot of more female speakers than I would see in a typical roster. And I was like, I want to work that into the rotation because I feel it's important to encourage women and encourage anyone to come into our field, especially with the balance of male versus female being kind of off in our, not kind of, but it is off in our, our field. But I did notice in InfoSec World, like there wasn't as long of a line for the men's bathroom as there normally is. So, um, props to you for, for reaching out and, and, and making that balance. A lot, uh, more even than it, it has been. Yeah, it's hard because it, women definitely have a different perspective on these conferences. And um, I think we're seeing more women getting involved. And I know a lot of great people who either are speaking or who have spoken. Mm-hmm. I know you're going to have Diana Kelly. She's one of my favorite people and favorite security people ever. Um, and uh, Jane Grohl is also yes. We, she was on uh, Enterprise last week with Alan Schimmel. Okay. Yeah, it was a fantastic interview. Great update on DevOps. Yeah, and it's, we have a bunch of other people: Lucy Hayward, Summer Fowler, um, a lot of great women who have been in the industry a long time, done a lot of interesting things. Um, but it's just there just aren't as many women, and. I think it'll get better because I think there's less of a a bias or I hope there's less of a bias in the schools. And, and they were all willing to come on the show and talk to, which I think is important uh, to, to have that on the show as well. Not to put anyone off to come in. Like you can be in our industry and come on the show and talk about what you're working on. Like there's no, there's no bias there, which is important to encourage equality, not just men versus women. But when you go to security conferences, people from all over the world of all different races and religions, it's not about that. It's about building our security community. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, I've always found it to be pretty welcoming mm. and maybe it isn't at other conferences, other right, events. Right. Um but we've never, I haven't, you know, knock on wood, I've never heard of any issues. That's good. People feel really comfortable. You see lots of different groups of people. Well, I, You know, Michael and I were talking last year, and he said he met a ton of new people. You know, he's been around for a while, but just being at the event, meeting new people that you didn't even know were out there. 
one of the reasons why I like InfoSec World is because of the diversity, in fact, because we went there and there were so many people that were like, hey, I've, you know, I've heard of Security Weekly or, you know, I listened to some podcast and then other people are like, I've never heard of you. I've never listened to a podcast. So just that, to have that diversity as a conference is one of the reasons I've always liked to go to InfoSec World. So. Yeah, and it's really cool. We have, um, last year we had people from 22 different countries awesome. at InfoSec World. Awesome. Which is kind of neat. So this year you've got some some great talk. I've seen your speaker roster because we're doing interviews with people from InfoSec World. So I get the luxury of cherry picking uh, talks. Uh, sometimes uh, I tried to leave out people who have appeared on the show in the past, which immediately disqualifies most of my friends who have been on the show before. I wanted to get new faces uh, on the show. Uh, and it was a great list to choose from. But uh, tell us about some of the talks that are coming up at, at InfoSec World in Orlando this year. So I'll try not to talk about some of the people who have been on the show. Right. Um, we know Kevin is a good friend of mine for a long time. Uh, Tom Esten, who I was chatting with the other day over a text message, like, yes, those people have been on the show. We know those people. So, But new and fresh faces are, are always welcome, too. Yeah. So um, one of the talks that I'm really excited about is uh, Randy Sabet. He's a lawyer in D.C. He works at Cooley, and he's doing a session on Watch Out, Another Regulator is Asking Questions. And I think that's going to be really interesting because we've just seen the executive order that says for every new regulation that's created, two are going to be wiped out. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting approach to regulations um, without getting political. I think we're going to see an impact in our industry because cybersecurity is definitely a topic at the White House. And then we have this weird thing going on with regulation. So he's going to provide a little bit of an update and talk about some of the things that he's seeing. Um, Darren. I, I'm looking forward to that because my, my personal belief is that I think there's some people that think that all regulation is bad and some people that think that a lot of regulation or all regulation is good. And I'm like, no, it's somewhere in between. I, I mean, obviously, everyone's nodding their head, right? Like, right. And, and I personally, in my businesses, have been affected either in a positive or negative way by regulation and spoken with people like Cory Doctorow, who has some great insight to, into all of that. And he was one that was like, you know, Paul, like, not all regulation is bad, dude. Like, some regulation's really good, and I've experienced that firsthand. Some regulation can have some really negative effects that maybe go with some potential positive effects, but like the negative outweighs the positive. So I think we need to have a much more educated view on regulation because I think our industry more than ever before is going to be subject to either loss of regulation or gain of regulation. And that can be either good or bad, depending on the situation. And I think some of the, some of the regulation is going to come out of sideways as well. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be directly aimed at cybersecurity but it's going to be aimed at financial services and healthcare and utilities. Um, and that will likely impact security and data. Right. Well, so the FCC this week. FTC or FCC? FCC. I think it was the FCC. The FTC is yeah. the one that was suing. Is it the FTC that was suing Netgear? Not Netgear, D Link and previously ACES yeah. were the FTC, correct? Yeah, but I think FCC yeah, now came FCC, out this week and said, hey, IoT vendors. You better get cybersecurity and your IoT taken care of. We're going to do it for you, right? So you're getting hints that things like IoT that don't have a lot of security built around them could be a target for new regulation. Just And, and we don't know if it's going to be a new regulation or it's just kind of the shot over the bow to say, hey, you guys got to think about this before you continue to put this stuff out there because I think they're worried about the potential consumer impact. So you see 
announcements like that this week. And, and you may see some more of that under this new administration of warnings, but maybe not regulation, but trying to get the industry right size to kind of take care of themselves in certain respects. My hope is that you know, we don't know what's going to happen and we don't even really know how security is going to be handled, but we, the presidential policy directive 41 that Obama put through, um, it didn't really do much, but it's there. And so I'm interested to see if it evolves because it, it was really, it was the groundwork and he put a lot of money towards it. So it'll be interesting to see how things evolve from. That's because most people, when they drive regulations, want to say they did something, right? And yeah. I'm, I'm fearful of the exact same thing. I accept Paul's premise that some regulation can be good. But, Paul, you know the question I'm going to ask. What's the problem it's trying to solve? Nine times out of ten, when there's a regulation, they can't answer it beyond some broad, oogly-boogly statement, in which case, that just screws us, and we should have less of it. So it'll be fun. It'll, it'll be good to listen to, to this talk because I'll yeah. probably learn something. Yeah, because I think you're right. In some of the regulations we've seen in the past, you see this kind of broad statement, not a lot of prescription behind it. So it leaves it open to Well, because it's knee-jerk, right? You've got to right. do something. Do something. It's security. Do something. Right. By the way, right? I mean, think about our talk even today as we're talking about IoT and everything else. Okay, so what's actually happened from it that's bad? I know all the things that can go bad, and for the record, I don't use any of it myself, but, but what's actually gone bad? We keep telling people all these bad things are going to happen that aren't happening. Then we lose our collective minds when we have no proof of the bad things that we've been talking about. Oops. Everybody okay there? Uh, yep. Yeah, nothing to see here. It's just, just a keyboard. It's all good. It's all good. Nothing to see here. Nothing was to it see an IOT, was there. It, was it an IoT keyboard? You didn't actually see it. You heard it. Uh, it, was it was a Bluetooth, Bluetooth, Bluetooth keyboard. It was a Bluetooth keyboard, so it's and potentially My teleprompter is telling me that it can't recognize the keyboard. So I, <laughs> speaking of bad things happening, Michael, I think something bad just happened. <laughs> well, and it sounds... I mean, it's, it's, I, I just... I, what, I've, what I've come to realize more and more is that we, we in security either naturally or have trained ourselves to look at the downside of risk to the point now that we forget that there's an upside to risk which Vegas, since we already talked about it on the show, is, is very good at, at capitalizing on. But the rest of it is, too, we, we look at these extremes of harm without realizing that sometimes it's not as bad as we thought it was. And it may be that it's not as bad as we thought it was yet, or maybe it's not as bad as we thought it was. And that's not meant to cause an existential crisis. It's just more to say, maybe there's more conversation to be had around all these things. Yeah, and that's actually one of the things I like about about the infosec world is actually I've had a lot of those conversations. So other other talks, Catherine. Um, so another one, sort of along those same lines, that I think is going to be interesting, especially given our administration and the things that are going on globally. Um, Darren Reynolds, he does privacy, and he's going to be talking about um, what is his? T- it's the title is forensics and discovery obligations versus international privacy law. So when Privacy Shield was um, introduced a little while ago, it changed some of the things from Safe Harbor before it. And so we were sort of starting to grapple with what Privacy Shield meant and what data could go where and how it could be used or how it could be accessed. Um, I think it's going to get even more interesting over the next four years, um, especially if we decide not to play nicely in the sandbox with other people. Um, and so Darren's a great speaker. He actually used to speak exclusively at our audit events about mm. security. 
So it's been many, many, many years since he's spoken at a security event and uh, for Misty. He's spoken other places, um, but that's going to be a really interesting talk as well. Um, and then Chris Nickerson is going to speak at the event as well. And like talk about complete opposites, like someone who's talking at an auditing event for a long time. And then we contrast with Chris Nickerson. And there's one of the reasons I like the event is because you get that, that contrast uh, in speakers. And I love Chris. He's an awesome person. And his talks are some of the most engaging security talks I've, I've ever, I've ever witnessed. And it, it like Chris could just go up there. You could give him anything on the slides and he could just give an awesome talk. Yeah. He's, he's really fun. I didn't know Chris again. It was, it was like you, somebody said, Oh, you got to have Chris Nickerson at your event. So, I reached out to him, and for some reason, he replied to my email, even though he didn't know who I was. And so, um, it's that awesome referral network that you're building right. in, in security. That's right, it's yeah. the referral network. Um, <laughs> I think he had actually been at Infosec World before, but um, when I came on board, I did want to have a little bit of a balance between some of those more hacker type talks and the business type yeah. talks. Um, we always get a few people who are offended by Chris's language, and they say yeah, that on their happens. evaluations. I smile and say, I'm very sorry. Um, but he's, he's going to be giving a talk on pen testing yourself to debt. Um, so nice. that should be interesting. We actually have a whole tools and demos track. Um, and one of our new speakers is William Janitor Lumpkin. Uh, he was introduced to me at DerbyCon, and he's going to be doing a talk on ninja looting like a pirate. <laughs> and nice. he's going to be doing demos and showing people in the audience how you get all of this information how you pillage how you pillage basically um and but not doing it for malicious purposes doing it you know when you're trying to hire somebody or Mm -hmm. if it's an investigation or if you're if you've had an incident at your organization so that should be a really fun talk too nice yep and then there's going to be a um hacking blockchain demo as well on the program Awesome. Yeah. Cool. So, so pretty good balance there. It's all the, all the rage. All blockchain. The rage. Blockchain. Yeah. Gotta have a few of those. Another talk that I'm really excited about, um, the CLO from Dunbar Armored is giving mm. a talk with David Etu on um, lessons learned from the Armored Logistics, data protection lessons learned from Armored Logistics companies. And David and I had breakfast a couple months ago and he told me some of the stories and i'm not gonna give anything away but it's going to be really interesting because the logistics industry they've they've been around forever you know going back to the days of you know bonnie and clyde and um some of the stories about how to protect assets are pretty crazy but they're still applicable in the digital world it's interesting i was watching a tv show person of interest yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the show. Love that show. Watch the, the whole series. That, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm just so bummed it's not. There bad. was a, there was an episode you know? where the, the guy that had all the mil- the guy that has all the military training right uh, goes undercover and goes to work for an armored vehicle and very quickly realizes that the level of training that the security cards for the armored vehicle company is nowhere near. Like they are completely unprepared for any kind of threat. So I'm sure that similar kind of scenario will will enter into to that talk. So Yeah, that, one of the stories they'll tell is about how they tracked down this guy based on an article of clothing. That's all I'm going to say, but it's nice. really really interesting. It was I was just sitting there 
listening to these stories, and I'm like, that has to be on the program because that's awesome. going to be really fun. Awesome. Well, Catherine, you do a, a great job of putting together content for uh, InfoSec World. So thank we uh, thank you for, for coming. You're going to stick around for all the other segments. I We're will. not going to let you escape without answering the five questions on Security Weekly. <laughs> She had this look of fear on, on her I face. I didn't prepare for that. <laughs> That's the whole point, is you're not prepared for no. it. So three words to describe yourself. Loyal, quirky, and honest. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Brussels sprouts. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? I must have been an asshole in another life. <laughs> in the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? First, I guess. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Oh my god! I know that's the that, hard one. I know really that's hard. we throw that in there. Do they actually have to be older than me, or can they be younger? They can than be me? anyone that you like—fictional, non-fictional. Oh, that's really hard. Um, Dev Patel, because I think he's awesome, and I want to go see his new movie. Um, and Julia Louis Julia Louis Dreyfus because she's just really funny. Nice, Catherine. Thank you very much. Um, Infosecworld.misty.com for more information about the conference. Stay tuned. Our next interview um, with Q from Logarithm coming up next. Logarithm's Netmon Freemium delivers real-time network visibility to quickly identify emerging threats in your IT environment. Netmon Freemium is a free commercial-grade network forensics and traffic analytics solution. You can use Netmon Freemium's powerful capabilities to search against all of observed network traffic, identify abnormal traffic patterns and application usage, and quickly analyze full packet captures. Take the first step towards real-time network visibility. Visit logarithm.com forward slash freemium to learn more and download it today. The Threat Connect platform and enables organizations to identify, manage, and block threats faster with threat intelligence, automation, and orchestration. Providing security teams a platform to unite their people, processes, and technologies behind an intelligence-driven defense. ThreatConnect helps increase visibility into networks and integrates with defense tools to close the gap between threat detection and response. Get your free ThreatConnect account today by visiting threatconnect.com forward slash security weekly. Endgame automates the hunt for both known and never-before-seen adversaries in enterprise networks. Built on unique knowledge on the adversary's tools, techniques, and tactics, Endgame's centrally managed agent prevents, detects, and responds to advanced adversaries at the earliest stages of the kill chain without prior knowledge. Endgame. Automate the hunt. Welcome back to Paul's Security Weekly. A couple more quick announcements. The 10th anniversary edition of Source Boston is being held this April, including training sessions held on April 24th through the 25th, and conference talks on the 26th and 27th featuring awesome speakers from the security community and events will take place in boston at the courtyard marriott downtown and security weekly listeners get a hundred dollar off discount on either the training or conference passes when using the discount code security weekly visit source conference for more information get out and vote for your favorite security blogs and podcast which is Security Weekly. Security Weekly has been nominated for the 2017 RSA Social Security Awards Best Security Podcast. Cast your vote today by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash vote, which will take you to the SurveyMonkey survey, which will let you vote for your favorite security podcast. 
Paul Security Weekly. Security Weekly. <laughs> I mean, whichever one is your favorite, not necessarily us, of course. It could be, be Enterprise Security presumptuous. Weekly. Presumptuous. Startup yeah. Security Weekly. <laughs> it's, it's I think we're actually things. listed as Security Weekly, which is kind of weird because there's multiple shows in the network, which is still taking time to people to figure out that there are multiple that shows. there's like three or four different variations of it. Four. There's actually a fifth that's unreleased that's coming out soon. So and I'm going to be a, um, a like a normal contributor to that one. You can, you can come on that. It's Secure Digital Life, man. It's it's actually pretty awesome. Um, there's a, a couple of guys that uh, we're friends with that decided they wanted to do a show with us, believe it or not. They want to hang out with us, right? Uh, Doug White, he's the director of uh, information security uh, programs at Roger Williams University. Uh, and Russell Bachman, who's also works for Roger Williams University. And Russell was – like the best I, description I have is Russell's doing this demonstration. It's security for individuals, right? But he's like, so this is a VPN. And he's got like a salt and pepper shaker, a straw, and then a cup with water. And then he pours some port wine. And I'm like, what is he? I'm like, why? I'm in the background going, why does he have the good port wine? What's he doing with it? (laughs) He's like, oh, he's just using it for his demonstration. I'm like, I hope he drinks it afterwards. Right. So he pours it. He's like, the water's polluted. And then he dips the straw in the polluted water. And he's like, clean water can flow through the straw between the salt and the pepper shaker. Even though the water's polluted, and the water can still be clean, he was describing VPNs right. on, on the show. Oh, cool! So it's kind of like that level with you know IoT, antivirus, mobile security, kind of built in. But the guys are absolutely hilarious. Doug is hilarious. Russell is there. It's really, really great. So security for the lay person. Yeah, security for like technology people. Yeah, right. you know, I mean, they, yeah. you, you gotta be into a little bit of technology, I think, to uh, to appreciate the show and and get into it. So, uh, our uh, technical segment uh, slash interview with Nathaniel Q. Quist is about. Did I say that right? Is it Quist? Yeah, Quist. Correct. I'm just going to call you Q because I, I think that's, that's an awesome perfect. that's an awesome nickname. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I've, I've, I've always wanted to say this, so bear with me. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Excellent. Thank you very much, Q. Q, what, is your, uh, what do you do for, for a logarithm? So with Logarithm, I'm part of the, uh, we've just re- renamed it, so forgive me if I slip up once. Um, uh, it's a forensic co-pilot. It used to be called the Incident and Response Team. Um, what uh, we do here in Logarithm is uh, we actually work with clients to help uh, mitigate and understand what happened in their environment um, after a breach happened or um, you know something suspicious happened. So we'll do a consult call with them, um, figure out uh, what happened in their environment, and try to help them uh, um, figure out how to uh, you know, get through it all. That's awesome. So, yeah. um, so what are some of the recent trends you're seeing when you consult with companies that are, are being breached? Like what are the, what are the symptoms? <clears throat> what are the causes of the breach? What are some of the trends? Yeah, um, so a lot of the trends that we're seeing, um, um, we're, we're kind of focusing now on um, um, a lot of Middle Eastern sort of things right now, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, um, there's some some things that have been um, out for a long time, like several years, like 2012 and older, that are kind of resurfacing and coming back into the environment underneath the um, kind of new guises, which has been kind of interesting to look at. And so we are uh, have a couple reports coming out. Um, we're actually going to start um, bringing out some um, actually trending reports, some, some uh, threat intel reports in the near future that we're going to um, you know, bring out to the public and uh, kind of, you know, put logarithms, I guess, uh, threat intelligence um, sort of uh, name kind of on the map, which is kind of a kind of a cool thing to be a part of. Cute. Do you see people, uh, attackers specifically or exploit kits, attacking systems like logarithm in an attempt to cover their tracks? 
You know, um, I, I can't actually say that um, we've actually seen anything where they're 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 directly subverting you know logarithm in order to get through. Um, you know, not to say that it couldn't happen. I mean, uh, it certainly mm. could. I mean, I think I think sim would be something that. Um, if you do, I mean, if you were going to be an advanced attacker, you would want to know if the uh, whoever you were attacking did have a sim, and then how to subvert said sim. Um, I would always like to throw all the other competitors under the bus first and say logarithm could could get through that. Um, I mean, really, because we do uh, look at ourselves um, pretty heavily. I mean, um, I'm not necessarily well versed in all the depths of all the other sims, but um, you know, we do look at uh, at the health and the longevity of our own sim um, pretty heavily. So. Mm-hmm. What is uh, some of the common techniques that you see attackers using to subvert detection once they gain a foothold? Um, you know, when it comes to um, subverting detection, um, you know, um, mostly we're, we're focusing on the malware side um, of it. So we see a lot of subversion of, like, say, AV. We're seeing a lot of subversion of, um, you know, some of those IDS systems. Um, that kind of sim is kind of an interesting um, place to you know, kind of detect some of those pieces because we, we, we detect from multiple angles and we can kind of see, um, some sides. I mean, obviously, if, um, Sim's also kind of in a, in a, in a tough location just because if you're not, um, getting the logs correctly from those log sources or those endpoints, then it's kind of difficult to, uh, to get those into the Sim environment, um, and, and then detect on them. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're, if you're collecting everything from across your environment and you're making a, a strong, um, stand on your endpoints, and you're you're really trying to get you know which commands were were actually executed on your endpoints, and uh, um, you know trying to get everything out of you uh, out of you know everything you possibly can out of those um, endpoint monitoring systems and your firewalls and all of that. Um, there there really is no reason why you shouldn't be able to find um, you know what's happening in your environment. You should be able to follow the breadcrumbs back. Right. Uh, along those lines, you know, having worked for a, a vendor and, and studying vendors on, on sure. our shows, uh, I think oftentimes it comes down to the configuration of the security appliance, the security software. Like, what are some of the things that you're like, oh, I wish more customers would configure it this way and they'd be more successful in detecting attacks? Sure, most certainly. I think um, some of those pieces where, where it would be really helpful would be to have um, you know, those command line injections, you know, to be able to have PowerShell, you know, logging, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, PowerShell version five is awesome. Everybody should have it on their systems. Um, you know, should have that enabled. You should have, you know, Sysmon, um, you know, brought with the, with the, uh, you know, internal suite that should be a part of your environment. So just so you can get some of those endpoint security pieces, um, brought into your environment. Um, you know, at the very least, at least on your file, uh, you know, file servers, your, your major core infrastructure that everybody's touching, you know, if those get compromised, you know, it's, kind of game over so q what are some of the uh tips you have for folks uh that are doing incident response obviously you're going in after an incident we've been talking a lot about incident response on the show this year specifically what are some of the critical components you see missing from people's incident response and forensics programs that uh could be improved upon uh in the future sure um you know, I think the biggest part we just kind of touched on a little bit is they're just not logging enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, logging in the past has been, um, you know, kind of hit or miss. But uh, in today's day and age and with all the different systems, I mean, Logrhythm has a, has a queue of, of requested systems to have logs, you know, um, you know, parsed properly, you know, you know, specifically for those individual log sources. And, um, you know, having having very detailed log sources, um, you know, from your entire environment is massively important when it comes to, you know, how to detect something. Um, and I think by far and large, I, I think that most clients just don't understand what to turn on. They just don't know, 
um, necessarily that, that, oh, you need to have more than just standard default logging. You know, we can actually up the ante on, you know, your AD logging and actually you have, you know, um, every action of login event instead of just a very default basic um, standard. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, levels or echelons that I found with log sources that uh, you can really um, push log rhythm uh, and any sim, really, for that matter, um, to a very um, you know extreme level where you're logging almost every single event that's coming through. I'm just to to, to take Carbon Black for an example. Um, Carbon Black has you know watch list levels that you can set a basic watch list where where if some event hits a watch list within Carbon Black and then goes to um, logarithm, logarithm is just going to see the watch list event. But you can turn that off and you can have every single event in your entire environment coming from black, uh, carbon black into logarithm. And, and you can, you know, really, you know, send so much data to logarithm, um, almost to the point where, you know, I mean, it's, it can almost be too much. So you have to, you know, you have to balance it, balance mm. it right. You have to find a good balance. So Q, are, are people still, most organizations still just kind of monitoring the network devices and not trying to get data from like the host itself and the other events and logs that are potentially going on in the environment. And that's some of the stuff that's missing to really correlate what's going on in the environment. Um, I, I could uh, almost say yes to that. I would want to caveat that honestly with, um, you know, it depends on your client. It depends on the client's, you know, vertical or, or wherever they're, they're stationed in, in, in the environment uh, or within their industry. Um, some clients are really good at pulling only endpoints and they may not be so good at pulling, you know, um, you know, firewalls or things of that nature. And then it could be the reverse where some people are just, um, all they really pull in are, are firewalls. And they don't have any endpoint uh, specifications or their SIM appliance. I mean, you think of the hardware limitations that itself um, might not be able to pull in every single endpoint you have in the environment, but it might be able to pull in, um, you know, very detailed information from that core infrastructure that I, that I mentioned earlier. Right. But I think what you're saying is it, it's the more data that you could potentially get from the different components in the environment, the better information the sim's going to have to actually figure out kind of what's going on in the environment, right? And so Almost certainly. don't limit just to network or just to um, higher level events in the, the endpoint, for example. Give me more and I can actually make better sense of what's actually going on in the environment. Yeah, most certainly, 100%. I mean, the more data, the more raw data you get out of all of your endpoints, not just one or a couple, but but every single one of them, the more capability your SIM will have in being able to correlate events and figure out, um, you know, at least be able to piece together that that uh, that trail to figure out what happened in your environment. Um, you know, and then it comes down to, like, tuning your AIE um, system or your, um, uh, you know, advanced intelligence engine to, to actually detect those pieces and being able to see that transition um, of events. Got it. Q, do you take what you've learned from doing incident response and working with your clients, and do you funnel that back into product management to make suggestions? And do you have, like, kind of some examples of some things that you've learned from the experience and adapted the product? Um, sure. So, so we've seen a, a lot of different, uh, um, pieces that we've pulled out of the environment. We always try to take everything that we, that we, uh, encompass and then turn it into a module that, that we can actually give back to our environment or give back to our clients. Um, so everything that we learn from one client, we try to turn that around and help everybody else that, uh, mm-hmm. is, is a client of, of, you know, specifically, um, forensic copilot, um, 
and, and they, they use, utilize our program and our, you know, our feature set. Um, we try to give that back to them, um, and, and, and help everybody else. And then we also turn that around internally. And so we're trying to, to meld everything together from all our different clients. Uh, and bring that into, um, um, we use our, our, our own threat intelligence, uh, platform. Um, and we, we, we roll everything that we get into this, you know, into our, uh, threat intel platform. And then we, tr- you know, see what kind of correlations we can make on an industry trend wise. Um, this is, uh, I'm still a very kind of new team. Um, there's only three of us, you know, mm-hmm. so, so sometimes it's a little, uh, we have to, you know, work pretty hard to, to get through everything. Um, but, uh, we're finding correlations and everything that we can find out of that. We're, we're trying as hard as we can to, to give that back to the community, uh, as much as we can. That's awesome. Yeah, it, Logarithm yeah. always struck me as a very customer-oriented uh, company, and the fact that there's a team that exists that you're on that does this kind of work is a testament to that. So. Yeah, that feedback loop, I think, is yeah. the important part, right? Because as you find new stuff, how do you productize that and, and open it up to the rest of the customer so that it's easier for them to detect some of these events that are going on and, and, and really leverage all the data and all the expertise that I think your team's bringing to, to make the products better? Yeah, most certainly. I mean, uh, just a little bit about uh, my team. I mean, we have um, a malware reverser that's been doing malware reversing for uh, 15 years. Erica, she's been doing a great job. And then Ryan's been doing uh, incident response dedicated for the past uh, 10 years with uh, various different companies. So, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to bring that expertise and, and bring it into a, a solid, cohesive, um, you know, product or platform that we can deliver to our clients and actually have um, something very unique that we can deliver to, you know, to the environment. Q, how is it important is it in the experience that you've had with Logarithm's clients that they protect certain data points that are logging the incident and also certain systems that are contributing to incident response? You know, last week, you know, we talked about an interview where um, it was the Saudi Aramco breach, right, where they wiped out 35,000 systems and they had to start from scratch. Uh, so, like, what advice do you have for your clients uh, in those situations to protect both some of the log data and also some of the processes and communication systems that are part of incident response. Sure. Um, and again, I, I want to keep, you know, I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm an employee of Logarithm, you know, and I think, you know, and I, I guess I'm still drinking the Kool-Aid after several years of working here. But um, I would really look into how does your detection system, when you first start understanding that there is a breach or there's an incident in your environment, how do you actually take almost immediate action on it, almost kind of an active defense sort of uh, environment? I know active defense kind of gets, you know, um, kicked to the side because it's too extreme or something like that. I'm a huge fan of active defense, and I'm a huge fan of your your book, too, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's uh, it, you know, and I, I think I think SIM is, is really cool to to put into that environment where it's in a very kind of unique spot to to actually do a, an active sort of event after um, detection or some sort of uh, you know, something after it. So, I mean, my first response to your question is, um, can we segment that network? Can we break it apart? Can we quarantine some systems that are um, potentially affected or even that we know they're infected um, and, and push those to a side? And we say, these are infected systems. And then we stop, you know, the spread of infection. I mean, Shamoon has been in the... Um, you know, news quite a bit lately. And it's just, uh, um, you know, I mean, and I think that's probably the side, the, uh, side of code that, you, that you're referring to yes, is yes. that um, they lost so many systems. Um, you know, if we were able to detect that first, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, it was back in 2012, it was decided as a, as a, as a worm, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know it, it moves through network propagation. So if we can detect 
network propagation before it really happens. Let's isolate that system before it has the capability to do that, turn off those user accounts, turn off some of those systems, and, you know, and, and push it out there. So do you see Logarithm going into what Gartner would call security orchestration and automation. You know, there's just new space out there, right, called security operations analysis and reporting, and they kind of break it up into three buckets. I still think it's one, but okay, so the analysts will do their thing. But you've got the threat and vulnerability management side. You guys play in the threat. We play as tenable in the in the vuln space, right? That's merging very quickly. You've got the SIR, the security incident response in the middle, which you guys play very, very well in. And then you have this whole new breed of security orchestration automation tools, the phantoms and those guys that are out there. And, you know, I can see the different vendors starting to expand into these different areas to start to address security operations and analytics more holistically. Is that something you guys are seeing, you know, within logarithm that, that is important to deal with, Hey, I see an event and in order to stop the propagation of that event, maybe I have to do some orchestration automation. Just curious how, how you guys are thinking about that. Sure, most certainly. Um, that is a that is a big key. I mean, um, you know, from the founders on down, so Chris Peterson all the way down through, like you know, um, the lowliest person in in our uh, you know environment. I think we're all very key that that we want to make um, detection faster. We want to make the you know the big keywords that we hear a lot are meantime to detect, meantime to respond. You know, how fast do we detect it? How fast can we respond to it? And we're trying to take that. You know, uh, what was the Verizon data breach? I mean, this is back, you know, a couple of years, 2015, uh, where it was 209 days or something ridiculous like that for a, for a, an incident to actually have any, um, you know, detection. I'm trying to take that down to, you know, hope, can we get it down to like, you know, the hour? You know, can we get it down to like, you know, within the minute? You know, can we, can we detect it as fast as that? Um, and if we can, how do we respond to it in, a, in as fast of a manner as possible? I think that uh, we're positioning ourselves into a spot where, where uh, smart response plugins and things uh, of this nature that, that work with tools, not just uh, logarithm on its own, sequestered in its own little environment, but, but as, a, as a kind of a key glue piece that hooks a lot of different SOC apparatus together, or apparati, I guess we can use the Greek <laughs> on that one. Um, we can, uh, you know, we can hook all these different things together and we can actually, you know, transition from, from what we get from one tool and we can say, hey, other tool, you know, like say, let's take firewalls, for example. We have all these systems in here that are talking to this external, you know, um, you know, IP address, let's, let's go ahead and block it because it just seems, it seems so suspicious. Let's just turn it off now. Um, you know, but we're, you know, it wouldn't work, SIM wouldn't work, logarithm wouldn't work without those other pieces of other tools that, that give it its information. I mean, it's not a one-stop fit all. It's, it really is trying to, trying to mold multiple pieces together. So to kind of answer your question, um, I see that, that trend kind of, kind of bleeding out there there are teams that no, then there are there are companies different companies that are that are trying to merge the pieces together logarithm is definitely taking that incident response it's taking that detection and trying to move into i want to say full network organization but but it is moving it towards towards an orchestration um, of, of some sort i mean from a security bent i mean the whole whole point of logarithm is to to keep your network more secure and more um, visible in a, in a faster easier manner Q, are there um, research projects that your team is working on or other like cool aspects of logarithm that you want to bring to light for our audience? Yeah, sure, most certainly. Um, so uh, one thing that... Uh 
So Logarithm's kind of a cool company. I'll give a nice little plug. I, I haven't given enough already, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, um, Logarithm does, I think, once a quarter, we do something called Hackathon. And yeah, hackathon I wanted to ask is, you about that. So you do the hackathons at, at Logarithm. Greg talked about that when he came on the show, Greg Foss. Um, and it yeah, sounded well, awesome. Yeah. Greg Foss had a, uh, actually, has a, I think I has a present for you next week, so look forward to that one. Oh, nice. I can't um, wait. <laughs> but, I think. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> no, you'll like it. Okay, it, good. It's awesome. Okay. As long as it's not soap, you're good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Depends on the soap. It's true. <laughs> so um, this last hackathon, um, unfortunately, I didn't have as much success di- as Greg did in the last hackathon. Um, but uh, this hackathon, what we ended up doing was we used uh, um, volatility as a log source. So like, I think we kind of all know volatility is a memory um, analysis tool, um, ba- um, you know, placed on a, on a Linux platform. And what you can do is you can feed it uh, system images and then run plugins against it so you can find things like registry, registry, uh, tongue-tied, registry strings and, um, you know, process lists, process executions, process trees, um, you know, timeline events, and you can kind of map everything that that uh, particular memory uh, image has done over the past um, little bit. So we thought it was a kind of a cool idea that if we take um, the volatility plugins and actually turn them into log sources for a sim. And then the sim ingests them like they would, um, you know, syslog or a flat file or Windows event log or whatever. Um, and then we parse it out based upon all of its data that it has contained within it. Um, so we're able to see, you know, what, uh, you know, take NetScan as a, as a volatility plugin, for example. You can um, have that pull out and, and it tells you all the different systems that, that uh, um, you know, that, that, system connected to, you know, um, which ports or protocols are ran over, which uh, ports are ran over. Then you can compare that with like, say, um, you know, your, your process list and see if that process list had any of that. And then you compare that process list with anything from your registry list um, that you're, po- you're pulling out. And then logarithm can do that correlation for you. And logarithm can do the correlation that, uh, or even just the, the basic golden image analysis. Uh, if you know what processes a particular system is supposed to have, it can compare all the processes that came through that memory list against that process list, and then any, you know, bad, you know, processes that aren't in that golden image, you know, instantly get flagged, and then you have, you know, that much more visibility upon it. Um, so, so I think that was a really cool idea, um, and, and it actually ended up working. We had a, you know, really awesome dashboard that came through that we could actually see the correlations from it. We had all the different process lists that came through, um, you know, processes were flagged that weren't part of the golden image, um, you know, and so in like a long-term pull on it, you know, how do we take that full circle? is if you do have a system that has been detected as some sort of compromise via an IDS signature being, you know, um, some even a, a firewall having an external connection going out, um, log, Logarithm can detect that, and it can then send a smart response to, say, some, um, you know, data collecting tool like, say, Carbon Black. I know I mentioned it a couple of times, but uh, um, Carbon Black has the ability to do a memory cabbage capture right there, and then we can have Logarithm trigger that memory capture. Carbon Black can capture that memory from that particular system, dump it into a file, Logarithm will then launch volatility to collect that memory image and pull all of the specific um, plugins against it. Then all of those plugins get dumped into a specific folder, and then you know we have all the data in Logarithm, and we can have almost immediate and dynamic, you know, um, memory image captures, pulls, and then actually have that um, return back into the system um, via you know. A number of different other tools. So it's something cool that that, that we're kind of working on. It's something that we're putting a lot of time and effort into. Um, but I think it's uh, I think it sounds pretty awesome. No, that is that is really awesome. I I think the integration to the endpoint is 
super cool into a lot of tools that do log analysis, network analysis, but then reaching into the, I'm seeing a trend this year of yeah, right. tools that can reach into the endpoint. They've been kind of flirting with it for a while, but I think it's really coming to fruition today. Yeah, and in, in understanding what's happening at the endpoint, the endpoint plays a critical part of the overall security posture and, well, and the more data you go have after from the it. Right. I mean, it, the like number one way is like phishing attacks, social engineering, client drop malware on the exploit, exploit. And, and there you go, right? And, and if you're not monitoring um, what's happening in the system, what's happening with new processes, new users being created, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, you're missing data that provides some of that intelligence yeah. into the sims that's needed to really correlate these events and say, hey, by the way, Something's going on. Let's flag this thing mm-hmm. as a potential indicator or an event. Most certainly. Well said. Well, Q, uh, Logarithm sounds like an awesome place to work, by the way. <laughs> Just The problem uh, is you guys are way, way north, and I'm way, way south. <laughs> it, is, it sounds like a really great place to, uh, to work. So uh, we thank you, Logarithm, for their support of the show and uh, having awesome people like yourselves to come on and share uh, great information. Uh, I just have five questions left. Q, you said you were oh, listening to the questions. show, so okay. you know the five questions. Maybe you've thought about them, maybe you haven't, but in any case, they're coming at you now. So three words Uh-oh. to describe yourself. Um, I would uh, um, say uh, um, probably energetic, um, a puzzler, and uh, hopefully random. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? This is my favorite question. Ready? I've thought about this probably way too long, but it's, a, it's an icicle. I think that would be pretty Yes, awesome. excellent. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Oh my god, what did you do? In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Did you think about this question a lot, Q? Because I'm kind of... No, I'm actually, it's funny. So when I was listening to the, the conversation before, um, I was just I was like, oh yeah, that's a question I didn't even think about. Um, and I guess my, my answer would be, um, um, it would depend on who. So I, first for some people, second for other people. That's a good, good answer. Uh, a good point, choose yeah. two celebrities to be your parents. This is the um, the actual. So so uh, last night I actually um, thought about this, and I actually woke up in the middle of the night, and I um, just had the. I just could not think of the second one. So the first one, it's going to be my dad. It's going to be John Cleese. I just have to say that guy is is a, is awesome. Um, but uh, you know the, the the mom figure. I just it's it's a, a tough hard, one. It's a tough one. It's a very yeah. hard one to say. Um, you know, um, I think that the closest one I'm going to go with is probably Uma Thurman. Nice, awesome. Yeah. Loved her and killed Bill. I was going to say, which, which Uma Thurman killed Bill? Or <clears throat> mine would be Kill Bill. I, yeah, because given my awesome talk, one, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I would. I would say Kill Bill. I have I have uh, three daughters myself, so I'm I'm always a strong of that strong female you know, yes. lead character. I, I did love his weapon of choice because the beautiful thing about an icicle is it melts. Is, is it melts. Yeah, no evidence. No, left. Yeah, no evidence. <laughs> That's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Which is concerning cool. when people tell me that because they <laughs> right because they really thought about it. They really thought about like if I had to like if I had to do this out, right, right how would I do it and, <laughs> and all the evidence would go away. Yes, you're somebody talking to somebody. I've never even been in a fist fight. You know, honestly, I never have. So it's like I've thought about probably way too much. <laughs> Well, Q, thank you very much for appearing on Security Weekly. It was nice to have you on. Um, and uh, props to you for working for Logarithm and, and continuing their awesome cause to make us all more secure. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. With that, we're going to take a short, short break, come back, and talk about our security news for this week.
IT Pro TV, an easy, entertaining approach to online IT training. Access over 2,000 hours of up-to-date, high-quality video content live and on-demand via Chromecast, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, PC, or your mobile device. IT Pro TV's premium membership grants access to all courses, transcripts, virtual machine labs, and Transcender practice exams. Corporate and group pricing are available. For a free 7-day trial and 30% off the life of your account, Visit itpro.tv forward slash security weekly and use the code SW30. Has your network been breached? Cyber Reason can help you answer this question. Cyber Reason products hunt for threats within your network and eliminate them in real time. To Cyber Reason, real time means within seconds. Founded by former military hackers who don't play by the rules, they've built this experience into their platform. Harness ingenuity and imagination, not just code, to defeat hackers. Cyber Reason. Disrupt the adversary and let the hunt begin. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email contact at netsparker.com. Onapsis, the leading provider of solutions to protect ERP systems from cyber attacks. Customers can secure their SAP and Oracle business critical platforms from espionage, sabotage, and financial fraud risks. Visit them on the web at onapsis.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This is our security news for this week. Um, I I thought we'd start off with uh, a story that I actually covered on Hack Naked News that I thought was so important that I wanted to make sure we had a discussion about it on this show some may poo-poo it. Some have poo-pooed printer security in the past or dismissed it as not being relevant. I've been kind of waiting like for probably 15 or 16 years for an attack like this to come out into the public because I think it's significant enough and satisfies my kind of like desire for a printer attack to make people think about printers as an attack vector and we saw uh, a German research team actually came out with this attack. Uh, there's a lot of technical details. Now, I think the uh, reason for that largely is due to the fact that they were trying to do it remotely from the Internet, which means they have to set up a malicious website. Someone has to visit that malicious website. That malicious website has to load code into the browser, which detects via port scanning a printer on the local network, which then through some attacks that have lots of acronyms, uh, basically infect the printer, primarily with PostScript, although some reports say that it is PJL, though when I read the actual German researchers page, they specifically pointed to PostScript, infects that with malicious PostScript, which means anyone who prints to that printer over the network, their print jobs are sent back through that client, back up to the website, and allows the attacker to capture print jobs remotely. Um... I want to get everyone's comments on that. Carlos, uh, I don't know if you've looked into this specific attack. I know, given your, your background in research uh, and your current day job as well, uh, you may probably have looked into this attack and, and have insights on it as well. Oh, Carlos, you there? Carlos might be muted. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I, I sat on the mute button. Uh, no in fact, what they found was uh, six different flaws, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Some of them will do password disclosure, print job captures. Um, there are a couple of buffer overflows, and they do everything over PGL and also via Postscript. And what you're mentioning, I think they refer to with a very nice kind of name. I think they called it cross-site printing. Correct. Uh, the, the technique that they were using. Mm-hmm. So what is actually happening is that when you visit that website, you get uh, JavaScript. The JavaScript, you can actually do a port scan via JavaScript, just yep. trying to uh, do a connection to different ports and see what type of error message are you getting. And then it sets, uh, it sends what they call an H, uh, XHR uh, header, I yeah. think it is. It's a XML or, or request. XML, HTT- XML HTTP request, right? And an XHR request to port uh, 9100, which is the one uh, for PGL uh, on a printer. And what, what they actually are sending over is a, a series of PostScript commands over to the uh, printer. And what the printer will actually do is it will do kind of like an echo, and it will return over uh, the HTTP headers that it had, uh, that, that you actually send it, but it will also attach to that echo uh, the print job that it has uh, currently in its queue. Um, so, so you have to have several things happen for you to do it. One, as you mentioned, you need to control the website. Two, you need to have a very good JavaScript written there uh, mm-hmm. to do your job. So if it is a class C, it's going to take a while. So you have to ba- make it kind of targeted. And once you have that printer and that user hits that printer, there has to be a print job there for you to actually get. Oh, I see. Okay, so there has to be an active print job at the time the attack is taking place? I believe so from mm. what I've read. Okay. Um, but there are other vulnerabilities that you can also do password disclosure and some other stuff. And people may go like, oh, but how are you going to know that if I have a printer? Uh, if you do a port scan, I'm going to be able to detect it. Oh, that's going to be slow. Well, you're only checking for port 9100, so it's not going to take that long. Right. And also, uh, let's say, do, uh, remember when I did at one of the Derby cons, my presentation on DNS Recon? One of my examples was Dell. Dell actually exposed, for some reason, their, all of their Active Directory domain controllers out to the Internet, and they kept it that way for several years, and they said that it wasn't. A security risk, uh, but uh, and when they did that, they also exposed their DNS servers. And I was able to do when I send my information a reverse lookup of all of their internal IP address space. So I knew that they were using HSRP. I knew due to the naming scheme on what floor that router was there, and I mm-hmm. also found all of their printers. Mm-hmm. I knew the names of their printers, and I knew their IP addresses of their printers. So in some organizations. Depending, uh, you, you can tie other information to make this attack a bit more targeted. And the only thing you have to do is probably do a loop in your JavaScript to just keep checking and put it in iframe and how many people keep, God knows how many tabs open running in the background uh, with JavaScript running in the background. So at right. some point or another, you're going to hit a print job. Who are you going to target? Chrome. HR. <laughs> well, it, it makes sense that a bigger company would be more at risk, right? Because more, more printers, yes. more, more, more printers, yeah. more people. Yep. Now, Carlos, you're, you're great at uh, kind of defining how the criticality of, of vulnerabilities and how <laughs> much 
like risk is associated for an organization. What's your? I'm curious what your assessment of this particular vulnerability. I mean, yeah, given it can happen remotely, but what happens if an attacker already has a foothold on the internal network? They can also exploit this vulnerability and yes. kind of like bypass a lot of the intricacies that revolve around you know they also have to bypass the same origin policy in the browser which is not trivial by any uh respect so what's your assessment yeah the the, the way i see it is what they're calling uh cross-site printing is just very nice marketing of a possible type of attack but very 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 unlikely for it to happen now, if I'm a real attacker, I would use, as you mentioned, as post-exploitation. So typically, who is your main target, let's say, for macros? Most organizations are going to secure their machines very well, but always HR and yeah. um, finance for some reason, and sometimes sale, have this convoluted macros, and they're always bitching about, I need my macros, I need my macros. So typically, when we do spear phishing, who do I target? I target HR, sales. And this type of people. So now I'm moving from the ground of uh, spray and pray tough attack to a more targeted attack. Now once I get my foothold, I get into those machines, those are the same targets that I want to get the printers from. So typically what I would do is I would enumerate the target by what printers does this target machine that I just own has configured. If I'm targeting HR, that's golden information and uh on um, PII information on the right. uh, employees of that company. If it is sales, I, I'm getting trade secrets. If it is finance, I'm getting uh, stuff that I can use if it is a public company to do insider trading on. So I, I'm seeing it more of, uh, as you mentioned, as a post-exploitation type of tool mm-hmm. and also for specific targets because nowadays most people don't print stuff and very few people actually print. But when you look at who actually prints that information – then you can start tying that inf- uh, that series of vulnerabilities, series of actions into a real risk. If it is something that the regular Joe user has to worry about, no. Mm. If it is something uh, on a advanced persistent type of attacker that can be in your network for a couple of weeks and be able to enumerate and gather all of that information, uh, you're a defense contractor or you're a large uh, finance company, then yes, this would be something that you would need to look at. Would it be something that you would need to look at today mm. or tomorrow? No, but in the long run, it is just one more type of vulnerability that can be abused. Yep. What about law firms, Carlos? <clears throat> like, because as firms. I'm thinking about people who still print excessively, mm-hmm. right? Oh, uh, yes. Law firms, especially like patent lawyers and people looking at trade secrets and stuff like that, they're they're printing out all their discovery. So. One of the things we know is that attackers are targeting more of these smaller firms, even mid-sized firms, because mm-hmm. most of the ones that we know, they have even if they have a dedicated security person, they are stretched thin. So, so is this then for them, right? Because normally Paul asked the question I would normally ask, like, of where does this fit? But it does actually seem like if you're less inclined to pay attention to these types of things, this could be a problem. This could be a problem. This, I would rank it as a low type of vulnerability okay. for one to uh, to uh, address. For me, a critical is that you need, you in 48 hours, you need a patch. Right. right. Uh, a high one, probably you can take a week to patch it. Although, you can put it in your next patch cycle if you're going monthly and patch it then. But that you need to patch it, yes. That is something that you should address. That it will bite your butt 
today, this week, or in two weeks? Probably not. But long-term planning, this needs to be included in that because it's going to be something we're going to see. But you could see a very targeted attack of a client-side exploit putting this beaconing capability there, looking for these print jobs, and then you know sending the data outbound to mm-hmm. command and control, right? And and so if somebody got the idea of, hey, I'm mm-hmm. going to go target law firms or finance departments or HR departments. Account, I think accounting firms, too. Potentially, yeah. yeah. You, you could yeah. see very specific targeted attacks that could leverage aspects of this more from the client side versus the remote side and collect mm-hmm. this data and send it out 443 encrypted, and there you go. Now, there it is. I just want to put this out there. There, There is no, from what I've read, there's no patch available from many vendors, HP being the, probably the largest uh, footprint in terms of printers. Is that correct? Yeah, and also another thing that you have to consider is that they very quickly um, put these printers out of... Uh, out-of-contract service. For example, HP will give you three years and five years, and I've gone into organizations where the printers have been there for seven, eight, ten years, and they're no longer supported. You're Mm -hmm. not going to be getting a patch. Well, and that's interesting, Carlos. Uh, Jeff Mann just spent some time with HP, uh, who has a new push into security uh, from Jeff's account on last week's show. Uh, they are making it more of a priority and want to address this uh, so much so that they invited someone from Security Weekly to go out and Jeff and, and Jeff went out to represent us and they definitely are aware of a lot of the issues. I'm curious to see if that translates to a more coordinated and timely response from HP on issues such as this. And, and was that HP Enterprise or the other HP, the one that deals with the printers? The other the, 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 the the HP. One that deals with the printers, yeah. yeah. They, he, okay. Yeah, uh, you weren't on last week, Carlos, unfortunately, to hear Jeff's kind of account of that. But he was like, yeah, like it's the HP that deals with printers. And yes, they do have a very much... Yeah, and, and, and I think that that was a good thing to happen to that group, to the IPG, Imaging and Printing Group. Mm-hmm. I used to work there. I, I worked there for 12 mm-hmm. years. Mm. So uh, at HP, not at the, in the printing group. And I have friends still there, and one of the things that they tell me is, now we have the budget, now we have the research resources that we can focus on this. And in fact, one of my friends, which by the way is also named Carlos, mm. was actually uh, showing me quite a bit of demos of what they're actually using, integrating with uh, uh, Active Directory and PKI and making sure that the user is not, is not only validated, but that he has the proper key also uh, via PKI. They're uh, using Kerberos, that now their packs are encrypted uh, properly with AES, not triple DAS as before. And he, what, what he has been telling me is like, now we have the researchers dedicated to us. Before we actually had to fight to actually get research time for people to start including uh, or research money for us to put into uh, securing better the printers. And now they actually even have tools that will go out and audit all of your printing environment and it will tell you, hey, you should harden your printers this way. This is the reason and this is the steps that you need to take. Do you want me to take it? They actually ha- even have tools that will do the auto discovery of all of the printers and give you options on how to harden them. Could I jump in there for a second? Yes, go ahead, Q. Yes. Awesome. So um, I guess um, so. I've I've been in a lot of different client environments. In my environment, just within the sim perspective, I guess. Um, 
print servers um, are not really thought of as having logs in any way. I mean, in, I guess in the standard general environment. So I guess um, um, I guess how much of would you all push for logs to actually be collected on a pretty high level from print servers, even given this, me even being a low level, you know, criticality, um, you know, um, are print servers considered a, a still a, a really strong endpoint? I mean, cause I mean, from a SIM perspective, they're really not, mm. not logged. Or no, and, and, and the thing with a print, and in, the, in this case, in this attack, you're attacking the printer directly. So you're bypassing the uh, print server. Uh, in the case of a print server, I would uh, I would think what I'm mostly worried about is not not so much the print server, but in the clients, the print driver installation, because okay. for many years that has been a type of attack that you're seeing out there. Because many of the printer companies actually do not sign properly their print drivers, or many times the computer will simply install the driver and not a, and doesn't check a signature on it. So for many years. Uh, by very specific groups out there, uh, some some of their tools in their exploit kits was actually forcing the the client machine to install a print driver over HTTP. They would send a request, and Windows would go, "Okay, you're a printer. Let me install your driver," and they would do it automatically. And that driver would then give me access to Ring Zero. Uh, Microsoft patched it, I, I believe, last year or the uh, the year before that. But it but that exploit had been in the wild for many, many years. Uh, so I, I would actually go with the uh, a new printer being added because I can bypass that printer. Anybody can buy nowadays a science certificate and just poison a printer and put in that, in that printer a malicious driver and then the machine would just simply go over and update its driver or during the process of a new installation, mm-hmm. upload that malicious driver and just give me ring zero on the machines. Interesting. Luckily for my home network, the only thing they'd get is a bunch of printouts of dwarfs and uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, wireless well, I, and I think Carlos, I think Carlos, you're correct. It's not something that hits the uh, consumer or the uh, end user of their homes. This is an enterprise business type issue. Even a small business, right? I mean, if you're a small financial company, you're five people, but you're managing hundreds of millions of dollars of assets. You know, your, your printers need to be in consideration for. Uh, security. Well, they do, but on the other hand, there's other such low-hanging fruit. It's true. Why yes. go through the complexity mm-hmm. of this type of attack when there are other things that are so much easier? Yeah, what do, what do they hope they're going to get out of it? I mean, are they going to hope that they're going to get uh, exactly? You know, hopefully the executives you know place so they're getting spreadsheets of you know numbers and you know financial data or the hr company where they're getting you know social security numbers i mean what exactly are they going to try to get out of it in the first place well that's where i that's where i went back to the law firms because i mean if if you know that this law firm's handling litigation and you either want to trade out that information or influence it that's exactly i mean you could set up shop next to the coffee shop next door right carlos how close do i have to be to affect this Anywhere in the world, it's oh yeah, well. Then if, there you if you're go. Using the technique about cross-site yeah. printing, printing right. it would be anywhere in the world. Yeah, well, but wouldn't it be just as easy to do a brute force attack on the passwords? No, it's true. It's true. I think as that's possible. <clears throat> what what we're seeing is kind of like a shift. In don't get me wrong, still attacking the operating system and the user is still the low hanging fruit. However. You know, we cover in all our shows, and we see at conferences vendors are doing 
uh, lots of really interesting things to protect the operating system. As that happens, attackers are shifting focus. We saw it with the Mirai botnet and starting to attack these other devices because now they're becoming mm-hmm. the low-hanging fruit. Right. So to get sensitive information, especially when it's printed, and we think about what needs to be printed, there's still a lot of circumstances even in the small business that we run, a lot of times there has to be a printed physical hard copy that I have to sign. A lot of documents yeah. that, that we do in business today, we can sign digitally. But as, as Michael and others have pointed out, in a lot of times like legal and accounting, like there has to be a hard copy. Some people still require yeah. a hard paper. copy. Yeah, yeah paper. Uh, and this you have to go into the level of maturity of the organization. For example, if you have an organization that has a very high level of maturity, this would be an attack that I would use against them. Right. Yep. It is a complex attack. It is convoluted, but it would probably be something that they decided not to patch. Now, when you're going into an organization whose level of maturity in the security aspect, InfoSec, is very low, why am I going to go through yeah, all of this yeah. trouble when I can just send an email and w- with an attachment with an exe uh, with the extension .txt added to it, and they'll click on it and give me access. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so it would so be a very, I, I would very say targeted. This, it, it will also, the level of maturity of your target is also going to determine what tools are, and techniques are you going to use against it. Especially if there's not a lot of technologies out there that can detect this attack. Yes. It is a it's one of those fly under the radar kind of attacks where you could get very sensitive data in a way that most of us don't think about monitoring, right? right. And detecting. So it, it could be very specific and in, in targeted in certain industries. It's one of the reasons I wanted to spend time on the show because in the uh, popular media, it was not covered right. all that well. Right. It's It's sort of that threat pyramid. It's going to be that top echelon. Yeah. Very right. targeted, very right. specific. Where I think more of the attacks are still going to revolve yeah, very around generic. The user. Yeah, they're they're all going to revolve around basic phishing attacks, exploiting client side vulnerability, getting access to the data. But in in environments that are starting to implement other monitoring techniques to detect that and start to mitigate that, this is a variation that potentially flies under the radar that nobody detects. Yeah, and another thing that we have to consider is that. Yeah, not only are we talking about a very small set of targets, which is printers that we have to find, and they have to be from specific vendor, but only they we have to find the specific model, and we have to find the specific model with the specific framework, because it doesn't affect all frameworks of this of that model. It it, it only applies to a specific framework sets. So now your target set is even smaller. Oh, interesting. You, no, yeah, how, because how, do you, the, how do you describe that then to like the industry at large when you have uh, multiple different verticals where you know somebody in you know say automotive will have absolutely no care whatsoever with this, but then you have somebody in financial that we're talking about that it actually is that. I mean, is is the, is that then cause for um, changing the criteria of, of escalation or priority depending upon the model? And then how do you reflect that to, to you to your audience to the you know consumers at large? And this is something that I deal uh, – your question is one that I deal a lot at work on a daily basis with customers when I go into support calls, and they get escalated all the way to me. Um, and I know it's going to sound douchey, but it's the same answer that any consultant gives. It depends on your organization. Many customers come to me, oh, this vulnerability is critical. I should patch it. And go like, no. 
And he goes, why? Uh, you shouldn't patch it today because you don't have anything important in that machine. No credentials. That machine's not even in the domain. Yeah, it could serve as a jumping point, but it's not that critical that you need to do it today. You can do it tomorrow. Plus, that machine is behind several firewalls, isolated, and it can touch your your, your client machines. It's going to vary customer to customer, depending on how they have configured the environment, what tools do they have in that environment to mitigate the attacks. So it's always going to be, it depends, because there are so many factors that can apply to it. Like w- Back w- to business context. Well, and, and it's interesting you bring up risk. the automotive industry. I don't know if any of us have bought a car in the past couple of years, printers, baby, it's all printers. <laughs> it's all printers. And if this attack were to affect an automotive, like a, a car dealership, right? Not the people that are making oh. the cars, but the people that are selling the cars. If you were to disrupt uh, ransomware, would be a huge attack. I think in this particular industry, because if you basically ransomware all their printers, so they can't do business. That that's a huge payout for the the malware oh, author. But, I don't want to give like, I, like Michael mentioned lawyers. Just go right. to a, a, a law firm and just ransomware all of their uh, printers. Oh, my goodness right. gracious. It could be bad for certain industries. I agree. Um, so let's talk about Trump's cyber executive order. That's pretty much all I have to say to spark conversation with, her, <laughs> with our illustrious uh, panel. 60 days. 60 days to evaluate all of the U.S. government systems that was my thing Carlos, so where are too. all the consultants yeah, nice. coming from <laughs> yeah well, I, they have giuliani so we're set right he's the cyber czar right, right. the czar yeah the czar. but, but, you, but, but no, you need a lot of people to to do this work in 60 days in i 60 mean days. those of us that have done consulting and been involved with the security industry know how long it takes to evaluate systems and when you look at this executive order and you even just theorize what could be in scope how much progress can be made in 60 days is what's going through all of our minds that are in and familiar with the security industry. They did. Obama actually did this when OPM happened. It's yeah. a very similar executive order. Yeah, but that's correct. one... That's one, one subset agency. Of, it's and a subset of an agency. Happened. He gave them 60 days and nothing happened. That's exactly right. We did it, and what? Oh, because we said we did something. This, right. this is why mm. I always come back to what's the problem we're trying to solve? This is this feels good. It sounds good. I I don't see the value of it. There's a lot of work to be done to to collect this data on all the agencies. The federal government has a, a, a ton of systems out there. How do you get this data in 60 days to say, okay, now what? Right. Because the what has to happen at the end of this is what's next. And, there has and, to and, be some kind of remediation, upgrade, patching, whatever you want to call it, plan. And mm-hmm. I don't think there is any. I think there's a time limit where he's thinking, oh, I'm going to do something. I'm going to be really effective. But 60 days, A, isn't enough to do anything and to actually find anything substantial. And B, to actually do anything do about it. And that's the key. Yeah, no, and you know, the thing oh, is that the 60 days is to gather the information. He, he, the 60 days is not remediation. 60 days is gather. I, uh, I, I gather all of the information. What are all of my systems? What are my risks? Um, yeah, the, the way I see it is a, a lot of people out there uh, in the security industry are just going kashing and having dollar signs in their eyes uh, going on this, but realistically will they be able to do it in 60 days no um 
I really hope that Giuliani actually has hired people that actually knows this a lot better and is able to target at least certain sectors. Mm. And in 60 days, probably you can get an idea of what is your footprint in some sectors, but not everything. Not everything. Yeah, it's going to be, it'll be, there's just so much out there that even with the existing programs that exist in the federal space, analyzing all the data in 60 days, unless you're, you're in, you know, including all the primes to like give all the data. I I don't know how you collect all the data, let alone decide what to do with it. I'll tell you what though, then. So that's the flip side to it. Cause we also know that, that when, when the shit hits the fan, we can do stuff pretty fast. So it'd be pretty interesting to see what happens in 60 days. It it does, you know, so if it comes, if it comes back as a, Hey, we did this big sprint, look at all this great stuff. We're better. Okay. Then, then this was crap. But if it comes back as, as some of we some of the discussions been as this is a really big problem guys there's a lot of complexity here and there's a lot of moving pieces and all we know so far is we got three basic things we got to go tackle right now and we got to get better at this and this is what we're going to do yeah. that would actually be pretty encouraging i mean that's that's leadership i'd love to see that gosh i'd love to see it in an organization and, and, right now and the only way i would see this as something working out is for example if they if that order goes to the nsa and says nsa i know you have this data you have been scanning all the internet <laughs> and if they don't don't leave nro need, out of it they don't, somebody needs to get fired fun. because part of their uh, charter is defense so they should already be monitor uh, and we know they monitor all of the connections that go in just passively they must have an idea what are all of the assets that the current government uh, our government currently has just passively they should have that in addition they have a charter of defense they should have that inventory now will they share that data yeah. i don't know right it depends who got the order because if, if, if they if, if giuliani has the power to go to the nsa and say i want this data probably they'll have some right and They'll be able to find something. But if the order is, let's do it, let's sit down, organize how we're going to do it, and let's execute it now from scratch, not going to happen. You know what? We didn't ask, right? What problem is this executive order trying to solve? Yes. That'll that'll give us the answer. Um, In terms of hiding data, uh, WordPress actually uh, had a big zero-day flaw, and they hid the fact, they pushed out the patch, and they actually hid the fact that there was a big flaw in WordPress. Not that anyone didn't know that there's always the next big flaw in WordPress. However, they didn't widely publicize it. And this is an issue we've talked about in the show for some time. When is the right time to disclose a vulnerability? And my question is always, well, how many people knew about that flaw before you discovered it and decided to hide it? And were you doing people a disservice by like hiding it and then like the underground knew about it and were exploiting it. So were you better off just telling people, Hey, there's a flaw. So you could do something to mitigate it in the meantime, before there's a patch. Sounds a lot like Yahoo right about now, right? Yeah. yeah we, we got breached, but yeah, we didn't tell you until like three years yeah, later. It didn't work out so well for Yahoo. No, I think the, the buyout, who are they getting bought out by? Uh, Verizon. Verizon. Not happening now, right? I don't think so. But no, no, no. They paused it. No, no. Guys, this is negotiation. I wouldn't get too far ahead of that. I, I would say that this may be the first time that we see that a breach has a material impact in terms of something that creates actual harm. But there's this could take us a couple of years to figure out, and this is a fantastic posture. Remember, rule number one of security, nobody understands it. It's great air cover for everything. 
Same same applies here. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, right? The zero day was probably identified somewhere else in the underground, probably yeah. being used. Finally, came to their attention. They figured out how to patch it as quickly as possible and tried to subvert it and, and keep it out of the news. But this stuff goes on all the time, right? And and so, do you own up to it and just publicize it, or do you try to hide it and and, and mitigate it? Um, I, in certain cases, I don't think this has worked out in the past, mm-hmm. and so. In this case, it might have worked out. It I, might have. I don't well, let me know. Ask, let, me ask a, let me ask a question. I just logged in and, and checked this. So in the, the current versions of WordPress, it actually allows you to automatically apply updates and automatically apply patches. So in that case, is, does that change the, the discussion or no? Exactly my point, Michael. It, it, as easy as it can be to update WordPress is like as easy as they've made it now. And I think that's why they can make decisions like this because... When I went and updated my WordPress servers this week, it was like, yep, go ahead, update. Because I've been keeping up with the updates. Now I've got a much better update process. I'm like, yeah, just update it. Right, but you're security-minded. Keep in mind that there are tons of people out there, small businesses. I used to work for a photographer who had a WordPress site. Yeah, not so much. He happened to be pretty IT Mm -hmm. related, but most people aren't. So you're looking for that. Well, I cover it on the show, so I see it, and I'm like, oh, I need to update my WordPress service. Right, but right. think about all of the hundreds of thousands of people who don't own a flower shop or yeah. run a restaurant or you know, na- pick your industry that's not security-related. And it's, I, th- I think it's their responsibility to make it... It's their responsibility to help their customers be secure. Hopefully they're on Squarespace or what's that other one? Anyway, Wix or something. Wix, thank you. Squarespace or Wix <laughs> that doesn't I have those issues. Well. Thank you, thank you. <clears throat> um, what else are we talking about? Oh, so there's a, a security firm. Uh, what is what is Zix Zix something? Hold on, it begins with a Z. They're buying old exploits. Zapirium. They're buying old exploits. And I read the article, and I can't for the life of me figure out what the benefit is of buying. Like, they specifically said, we don't want zero-day exploits. We want to buy old exploits. Why would you do that? I don't understand. Because they Cause still work? Because people don't patch? Because they still work. Because right. they still work? They still work. Well, go Metro WordPress example. Yeah. I guess you would buy... Um, the question is what they're going to do with them when they buy them. Are they going to responsibly disclose and get them patched, or... Or, or are they going to sell them out, right? I, I mean... KT's right in some respects. I mean, we don't, if, if we're not patching our systems, those exploits still work. Whether There's they're still old or value not. to them. Right. Yeah. There's another component here, too, because this is focusing on the, the highly fractured Android marketplace. Mm-hmm. How many times have we seen in the last 20 years where that was fixed? Oh, here's a new release. Hey, look, all the old bugs are back. Because yeah, when the teams were working on the next version, they, they, they were moving off of a different code base and they never updated the patches into it. This may be actually genius on a criminal level. Mm. Mm. Android scares me a lot more than ever before because of the story we covered where Android devices or uh, specific malware is targeting Android devices that then go look for IoT devices in the internal network. To me, that's one of the most like impactful stories that we've covered this year. Like, Reason 127 not to have a smart home. What's that? Reason 127. Yes, not to have a smart home or IT devices. (laughs) Or an Android device. Yeah, but Androids are interesting because a lot of the attacks on Android are are very specific to the 
um, the version, the device, mm-hmm. w- which is something that's interesting. Yeah. So just because there's an exploit there, you, you got to look at the factors associated with the the device and the version and the this and the that. It, it's It's not like an exploit in Apple, which affects like everything. Android has more uh, variation to it. And so the question is, based on what you're running, the device you're running, the version you're running, how big of a risk is that? Because not all Android exploits are the same. Like in an iOS environment where everything is homogenized, there's a lot of heterogeneous aspects to, to Android. So some would argue that Android's a little more secure in some respects because of all the variations of, of what's running there. So I'm curious from an Android perspective how much of that's actually relevant versus something in Apple iOS would be hugely impactful um, because it would affect the entire iOS base. But anyways. It's that whole um, monoculture debate. Correct. Was it Dan Gear that talked about that? Yeah, there's a couple of people that have talked about yeah, it, talk, you know, yeah, that, 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 that there's pros and cons of homogeneous versus heterogeneous mm-hmm. and what's the effort required to exploit a very small set versus going after the homogenized world where it would impact everything because you get a much bigger bang for your buck as a hacker to go after some of those. So right. Android has some interesting aspects to it. Absolutely. Yes, didn't that go into like, what is the uh, the money? How much money can you actually make off of some of these old exploits? I mean, Android is very niche and like it only lasts for like a, a version or two, right? So, you know, um, are they banking on people still having old outdated versions of you know, of Android. I mean, in the U.S., isn't U.S. a very uh, throwaway society where it's kind of like, oh, I have the latest phone. It's good for two versions. All right, get the next one. Yep. Oh, good for two more versions. You know, um, you know. I mean, how much money can you actually think about making off of it? Or is it not directed at U.S. people, but more outside of U.S.? Exactly, right? It's the whole effort to exploit versus the monetary gain on the other side. And eventually, when when it turns the other way, it's not worth the exploit anymore. So. Uh, I had another story in here that reminded me of a uh, an interesting situation I ran into on a penetration test where I had gathered uh, PII from this particular organization. Then uh, I had found an exploit that allowed me to get gain control of their radio station. It was a computer with software that determined what content was being played in their radio station. And I was like, wow, the combination of those two is really bad because I could have them reading everyone's social security number over the radio station. And like, how bad would that be? Well, there were some hacks earlier this week, wasn't there, where they hacked into some of the radio stations yeah. and they were doing and they were the, uh, Trump, the bleep Trump, yeah. Trump the song. Trump stuff, over. right? Yeah. yeah. Apparently there was a, some kind of IoT device that they figured out there was a flaw in that allowed them to hack the radio stations. Interesting. And they apparently can't stop it either. It really? Who, whoever is doing it is pretty crafty because they found it. It was happening. They tried to shut it down. It came back again. Oh. <laughs> yeah, they've been doing this both on radio stations and they had a few media uh, outlets with like commercial stuff flashing on the screen. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. It's yeah. kind of like that Batman movie. One of the first Batman movies where he infiltrates the TV and comes on with his TV ad. It's right. yes. like that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a few, a few attacks yeah. earlier this week on that. Yeah, a lot of anti-Trump stuff um, this week on both radio and TV. Interesting. Anyway, uh, HG Moore has joined uh, a company. Did anyone, did Carlos, anyone, did you uh, see the story? Nope. I did not. I saw, the, I saw the Twitter headline. That's all I saw. 
Well, so wasn't he doing like, um, he was doing VC some work. VC work, right? He was. We interviewed him. Uh, he was our first interview with Michael and I on Startup Security Weekly. Uh, HD being uh, one of the nicest people in the world and one of the nicest people in, in security, graciously provided us with an awesome interview okay. on, on Startup Security Weekly uh, and was doing some angel investing and also supporting uh, startups in, in security. And he has joined... Um, uh, Altreatis Partners, a firm that penetration tests and research for its clients. Interesting. Awesome. So he's multifaceted now, doing a little investment and, yeah, and, and now doing some consulting work. work. Well, yeah. you know, HG doesn't like sleep or anything. So. No, definitely not. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. not. So that's really cool that he went to, went to work for a company uh, basically doing uh, yeah, I just, pen I, testing. I thought he was going to go off to the world of where Ron is, yeah, right? And yeah. doing kind of investments and in, in building out portfolios, but obviously he still wants to uh, keep his hands in the business and, and you know keep his skill set up. So I don't, I don't blame him. The, he he's, he has been technical most of his life. I've been technical most of my life, and I can say by experience that sometimes moving away from the technical side it's painful for us, and going back to it, it's kind of like finding an old friend. Yeah, you know, it's interesting in the article it says that the company, uh, they say that we use real attack scenarios and advanced vulnerability research techniques identifying known attack classes while also finding new zero-day vulnerabilities unique to your environment. So it makes sense that HD would go work for a company kind Absolutely. of on that bleeding edge of I mean, because that, that's yeah. what he's known for, right? Yeah. So, I mean, for him to be able to do this and, and leverage his knowledge and expertise to that firm probably just keeps his technology brain going while he's also doing some investments right. on the side. And, and adding yeah. some huge value to this company too yeah. as well. Right. So hence us talking about it on the show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, great for him. Yeah. Awesome. And good for the Altradius. Altradius. I don't know how to yeah. pronounce the company, but good for them. That's awesome. Um, Google had an interesting presentation about how they assisted in the Mirai botnet attack that took down the Krebs uh, website. And I, what was interesting here is they kind of debated, like, uh, in the article, they explained how they're like, this is the, one of the largest DDoS attacks we've ever seen on the internet. And Google was like, if we get involved, we risk the attackers coming after Google. And they actually believed that the attackers had the capability to take down Google. And their decision was, well... If they could take us down, like we're at risk either way, whether we help or not. So I think their decision was we might as well help to understand it because if it's something big enough to take us down, they could anyway. So we might as well get involved and help. I, I thought that was pretty cool. It's interesting. By Google. Think about the scale of Google and their infrastructure from a global footprint. I mean, they have one of the largest um, backbones anywhere yeah. in the world, right? If they're fearful that somebody <laughs> like this right. can take them down. That's significant. Yeah, that is very significant to our industry. Extremely if you can DDoS Google. Yeah. Think about like what you win that the takes. internet. Yeah, like you, exactly. You, you win the internet. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting. That's that's kind of scary. That was the scariest article I read this week. That Google was actually concerned about that. Um just it goes to show the state uh that we're in and how deadly some of these IoT botnets uh can be. Um, I, this article was really strange. Um, well, actually, before I get into the strange one, uh, I wanted to, uh, Riley, one of our production engineers, huge baseball fan, 
right? Yes. And he's like, uh, Riley's in my my ear now. No one, I don't think the uh, our audience can hear. No, they can, they can hear me right now. Okay, so Riley, he's the audio engineer, so he his voice can be wherever he wants it to be. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but Riley uh, reminded me of the the St. Louis Cardinals. Do you remember the story? There was someone that worked for the St. Louis Cardinals. Riley, why don't you just tell the story? You can tell it better than I can at this point, actually. Okay. So essentially, Chris Correa, who is the former scouting director for the St. Louis Cardinals, dating back to June 2013, he started um, accessing the Astros, uh, Houston Astros scouting reports and medical records of draft prospects in the weeks and months leading to the June 2013 amateur draft. And he essentially had unfettered access to medical records, um, scouting reports, drafting, um, a whole bunch of other di- obviously disclosed documents that the Houston Astros had. Um, he's currently serving a 46-month prison sentence for it. Um, he was sentenced, I believe, uh, in July of 2015 or 16. And the Cardinals and the Astros are in the same division? Um, they used to be. Um, the Houston Astros used to be a National League team. They switched to the American League very quietly because they were absolutely terrible in the National League. Ah, um, okay. So okay. The, the Cardinals are a National League team. They needed the DH. That's what they needed. That's right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, the final ruling was cur- was um, just handed down um, from Major League Baseball. Um, the Cardinals have to give $2 million and their top two draft picks for 2017 to the Houston Astros, which wow. is a That's huge big. blow. The, oh, pen- yeah. the penalty, not only did the person serve prison time, but the penalty was the sports team, team related had to, had yeah, to pay between the, the two teams. That's actually more impactful than most hackers get. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like a big yeah. deal. That's a, that's a big really, deal. The, for, you said the first two draft picks? That's huge. And two yeah. million bucks. Well, well two, mean, million, two million. Two million. Two million. Baseball, well, I don't know. Baseball. But top two draft picks. It's, it's yeah. a big deal draft for baseball, picks, I think. That's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Us being Patriots fans, we know way more than we ever wanted to know about penalties and, and fines <sighs> yeah. and all that stuff. They need a few more. Uh, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> it won't matter. It won't matter. With Brady and Belichick, it may not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> debate what you want about Brady or Belichick independently. Together, there's really no debate about being the greatest coach and quarterback ever to work together. Here's what kills me. Belichick was the Browns coach, yeah. First, right, and in just but they always lost, so he had to right. Leave. So he left, and now he's built this empire in empire. New England, and it just kills me as a Browns fan because you can't root for him. No, Brown- oh, really? I grew up in Ohio. I mean, oh, who do you root for? I'm sorry, Cleveland. I know. That's who we it's rooted bad. for. Cleveland fans are so dedicated. You might get we are gar- die hard. You, there's rumors you might get Garoppolo though. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't. But he's a good quarterback. You the, can't the, debate he's, the, not, he's the, a good quarterback. But the problem is, as long as that environment it, it is the Browns. Top, it, oh my God! There it, are people that are from pushing the top all yeah, the way down. There are people that are pushing the Garoppolo uh, and Josh McDaniels like to not go to Cleveland because it's such a like a messed up organization. Uh, ever since you know when when. Modell took him out and put him into Baltimore, and then they went and won the Super Bowl. I mean, we all just cringe, right? Uh, we lost, you know, somebody like a Belichick and, and mm-hmm. what Modell ended up building. Ever since Lerner and the family took over and, and Cle- oh my God, it just kills it's me. Just all focus on uh, basketball. Just, just. Yeah. <laughs> Baseball was close this year. We went to it, was, it was close. Oh my God, we're so close. I was at the series in 95 and 97 when I still live in Ohio. Yeah. And they went back this year. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so close. 
So we're next in line because we're we now have the longest um, streak on the baseball side since the Cubbies won. So we're rooting for you as yeah. Red Sox fans. We're believe me, no, you're we, not. <laughs> as long as our team's not in it, we're rooting for you anyway. <laughs> we could be like the Broncos, and you have Manning that just takes us to you know right to the end, and then this year Manning's gone, and we suck again. Right. So, well, that's you know. the reason I couldn't root for the Broncos for so long because in '88 and nine in '89, the drive and right. the fumble was what kept the Browns out of the Super Bowls back then. <laughs> So it took me a long time to root for the Broncos when I moved to Colorado. Yeah. And it was only my kids and Manning that really kind of put me over right. that edge. But I, this year, midway season, it got so bad I couldn't even watch them. It, that's how bad it was. So, yeah. Let's not get I, I grew up in Buffalo. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yes, I know that. Yeah. Living. You're almost as close to us. I still refer to the Broncos as the donkeys to my father-in-law, and he just he hates me when I ever say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the last story was uh, a patchwork quilt of IoT security, and I, it, it, it's not a it's not a great article, but it kind of speaks to one of the other talks that I'm working on. That yeah, there's a lot of problems with IoT security, right? And I think as an industry, like to spend more time to point out more of the problems is kind of just like it's beating a dead horse like a thousand times over. Like we've like you said, you get 22 entries, you know, submissions, 23, here. But 23. Yes, exactly. And it, but we need to start talking about some of the positive things. And I think very much so there are small pieces that when you put them together can really win in terms of IOT security. And we were talking about, um, FT, FTC or FTC, FCC. both, yeah. both, or, both government organizations right. have actually, Kind starting, of, the ha- they're yeah. starting to pay attention. Asus had the lawsuit a while back. D-Link is the most recent uh, IoT security company that is uh, under the lawsuit from the FTC. FCC uh, has done some stuff. Uh, FTC put out the whole like hacking challenge against IoT devices. One of the other things I'm going to talk about in my talk are the bug bounty programs that these companies are implementing. Netgear being one of the most recent companies to implement a bug bounty program. These are all small pieces, right? We're not going to... Bruce Schneier and others went to, to Congress uh, while Obama was still president, uh, which was the wrong time in that transition period, in my personal belief, is the wrong time to go lobby for something of that nature. That uh, They argued for a new government uh, body to be uh, created. In, in the current administration, that's just not a reality. So I believe that we're going to see wins that is going to be like a patchwork, like this article states, that is going to string some things together that I think as a security community, we have to get behind and support. Each piece is not going to be perfect. It's not going to solve the whole problem, but we need to be behind those uh, efforts to make IoT security better. But, but we can't repeat the mistakes of what we did in the enterprise security space, right? If we, if we take a multifaceted approach, we can't isolate all the approaches and all the technologies and go after this as a bunch of individual piecemeal solutions, right? We really have to figure out how to work together across all these different solutions to solve the problem. Because I think that's one of the big things that's really impacted us on the enterprise security side is we went down this more, this layered approach, but isolated the layers and not interconnected them. So if you're going to do a patchwork, great, but the patchwork has to work together to actually solve the problem and not 
go after this isolation like we did in the enterprise space. Yeah, like the vendors have to take responsibility or get some pressure to have some responsibility. The consumers have to be educated. We as a security community have to be able to identify and work with the vendors to describe those issues, work with the enterprises and consumers to come up with defensive techniques. And that you're right. It has to all, all has to come together. together. And it has to yeah. work as a, as, as a true integrated approach versus right. a bunch of isolated solutions. Because you're not going to stop this train. I mean, no, as much as we like to, like Catherine's like, I don't want IoT devices and I don't blame you. Certainly. But I want individual and, and most people are going to do it. And actually, um, Corey Doctorow, who, who's one of our keynotes, um, the EFF has filed a suit against the U.S. government um, for the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Yes. And so that could have big impacts on what happens because, right, so DRM is in everything. And now the security community is handicapped severely mm-hmm. by what they can do without getting in trouble. You know, the research community is, they, they have their hands bound to a certain degree. So if that comes off, that'll be helpful for the security community. But it also is about educating, like you said, it's, it's educating the consumer too, because we can be in the security community as diligent as we want, but... If you're getting a device at home and you're not chasing, uh, changing the default password, it doesn't matter. It won't matter. Yeah. It right. won't matter. Right. But right now, even the consumer is severely limited on what they can do because of the DMCA, which is a 1998 right. law. Yeah. Don't remind me. But anyway, so, but we, we like to draw parallels, right? And we draw parallels to your home and fire standards and all of these different parallels, home security, IoT devices to me are, are in a different category because of the complexity, because of the connectivity, because of the fact that, yeah, I should have a smoke detector in my home and there are methods in place and procedures in place to make sure I have that. However, what people aren't considering is what happens when someone turns that smoke detector into a weapon, right? Like that, there's no parallel to that in that example. Most people don't even change their batteries, on their smoke detector. Right. They're Until not. they beep. <laughs> Until they beep. <laughs> Until they beep. Which is three years after you should have changed the battery. Right. Exactly. So they're certainly not going to be thinking about the default password on their smoke detector or on their refrigerator. On their Nest device, which right. is controlling a ton of activities within the house, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, my home is fully... Not fully, but most of the way automated. And it's kind of scary. Mine's right, not. so they can if, go after if, you and not me. It's if, true. If, if I could disconnect from the grid, I would. Mm. That I'm just paranoid. So, <laughs> But you don't get the cool factor of me walking in, down my stairs into my basement going, Alexa, turn on. Oh, sorry, I said the word. I apologize for, for anyone who has one of those devices. I say the key word, turn on all basement lights, and magically all my lights come on. <laughs> can do what I need to do in the basement. Keyword: Turn all the lights off. And, and yeah, and, but and I have light away. switches on every entry and exit, so I can also just yeah. Like, but it's the cool factor—the oh, fact sorry. that I feel like I'm on Star Trek and you're I'm a, so a, much a nerd. Than, this well, is actually, what gets you're us so much trouble. cooler than both of us. It's right. the nerd factor of being you. able to do that. It's 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 that excitement factor of being like, look what I can do. Not realizing what the impact of right. some of that could be. Right, I have right. to say, two years ago, you gave a talk about how your t- your refrigerator is going to be able to tell you what meals you should make. Yes. I'm still waiting for that refrigerator. They, um, I have seen advances in refrigerators. 
I haven't read about ones recently that give you the recipe. I'm that waiting. was still a, a proof of concept at CES. Um, the Samsung and others and LG have come out with ones that have a big tablet on the front. Uh, they do have the camera system inside that keeps an inventory. So there have been advances. But they can't say make X tonight. I recently coming on the market. I, I don't. No. I don't see that yet. It what is coming. I just don't want my toaster to like decide to turn itself on and try to burn down my house at two in the morning. Right when I'm sleeping. That could happen. It could. It could. Potentially, yeah. Um, what is? Art used to, lots Art, of examples. Of- Art Coviello used to talk about this a little bit in uh, a couple years ago when I was at RSA, and the, the probability for a destructive attack is more likely now than it ever has been because of this these interconnected devices and the ability to turn on the gas on your stove and ignite it and, and blow up your house. I, I mean, we would never would have thought of that growing up yeah, at but all, is, but don't forget that doesn't give the attacker any money, but true. If it they're depends. able to if turn off the heat- attack, but it also, you know, going back to one of the earlier conversations, it has to be really targeted. They're not going to go after me. Somebody, Unless they have something against you personally. Like but, it or, says they're not going to go after me. Or they, they've skinned the internet. They found your your refrigerator and a thousand other people's. And they said, you know what? We'll turn off your refrigerator until you pay the ransom. Then we'll turn it back on. Or in the winter here in New England or in Denver, we're going to turn off the heat in your house until you pay the ransom. Right. But if they turn off the refrigerator in the winter, you just put your food outside. No, that's true. That's true. true. They'd have to do that in the summer. Uh, it also, works. It works. I tell you, it does work. It does. Yeah, we get plenty of cold nights in Colorado. So we're all good. <laughs> I live it. at 6,800 feet in elevation, so it gets plenty cold in the winter. And we've seen attacks with uh, televisions as well. Uh, mostly ransomware now. I think it's also moving towards the advertisement, right? I'm going to put advertisements up on your television. That's going to be super annoying if you don't secure your television. I'm more worried about them like using the speakers and stuff to like monitor communications. I don't watch that much TV. So. That's I mean, that's a concern with the Amazon Echo platform and other devices. Right, but as don't well. they have mute mode? That they you do. Can turn on. Yep. Uh, with my kids, I have to do that all the time because we don't. Everyone in my house doesn't like the same kind of music. So when I play music, my my kids certainly know how to use the Alexa platform, and they can most certainly scream commands at it to make it stop. <laughs> and what you have to change your behavior, like. You when they yell the key word, like I'll be like stop it, and then but they've yelled the key word, and the echo platform has heard me say stop, and then my music stops, and I'm like, I have to be like, like don't do that, or like say something right. that's like not a command that they're gonna interpret after they say the key word. It's it's it, there's a you lot can say of say cool it, and the next thing you know, your house gets colder, or they're playing a song like with cool it <laughs> in it or something, right? Like that's coolio. We Going have, back to yes. 1998. Yes, it, that definitely happened. There's a lot of Amazon Echo fighting in my house. <laughs> a lot. Not in mine. A lot. It ain't coming. <laughs> it's kind of funny, actually. I yelled uh, at my three-year-old for doing something like completely inappropriate. I, three-year-olds will, will do that, right? And uh, he walked up to the uh, Amazon Echo device and said the keyword and said, Mommy and Daddy are being mean. <laughs> And she's like, I, I don't understand your request. 
<laughs> yeah, but unfortunately, it's going to be one of these days where it's going to go, well, should I call 911? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Police are going to be in my door. What's going on right. at this house? Mommy and Daddy are being mean. 911 right. call. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, Q, thank you very much for your uh, guest appearance here on multiple segments of Paul Security Weekly. It's wonderful having you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, Carlos and Michael, are you still... Do we lose Carlos and Michael? Oh, they okay. dropped. Oh. Thank you, Carlos and Michael, uh, and uh, to Matt and uh, Catherine for coming in studio. Thank you very much. Always Thanks pleasure. for everyone for listening and watching to Paul Security Weekly. Over and out.